0: Today I am presenting the audio from the event I did in Denver with Robin Hansen. Robin's a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he's the author with Kevin Simler of a very interesting book titled The Elephant in the Brain Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And I give more of his bio from the stage, but I really enjoyed this conversation with Robin. We spoke about all the related issues here of selfishness and hypocrisy and norms and norm violations. Cheating, deception, self deception, the evolutionary logic of conversation, social status, signaling and counter signaling, common knowledge. There's many interesting topics here. I enjoyed the event. Unfortunately, the audio is a little wonky. We are completely at the mercy of whatever recording we get from these venues. And there are a few moments where things cut out. It's a little echoey. It's not that bad. Once you start listening, you will acclimate to it. But It was a good conversation. And so now I bring you Robin Hanson. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Harris. thank you all for coming out. Really, it's, it's amazing to uh, see you all, or see uh, some fraction of you. Uh, I'm going to jump right into this. We have a very interesting conversation ahead of us, because I have a great guest. He is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's also a research associate with the Future of Humanity Institute, which you might know focuses on existential risk and other big topics of ethical importance. He has a PhD in social science from Caltech, a master's in physics and the philosophy of science. He did nine years of research with Lockheed and NASA, uh, studying mostly artificial intelligence and also Bayesian statistics. And he's recognized for his contributions in economics, and especially in, in prediction markets, but he's, he's made contributions in many other fields. And he has written a fascinating book, which. Unfortunately, it's not for sale here today, but you should all buy this book because it was really, it's amazingly accessible, and he just touches so many interesting topics. That book is The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Please welcome Robin Hanson. Thanks for coming. We're here. So
1: your,
0: your reputation for being interesting precedes you. I deny it all. Uh, so I, I, I want there are many things we can talk about, and uh, as you know, but I, I want to focus on your book, and I want to move in a kind of a linear way through your book, because your book is just is so rich, and I, I don't think we will do the book justice, but we will try. The book is really a kind of a, a sustained meditation on selfishness and hypocrisy. We have these ideas about why we do things, and then we have all of the evidence accruing for the real reasons why we do these things. And the mismatch there is is rather harrowing to consider, and your book is just an unvarnished look at that. So I want to tour through this, but perhaps before we get to some of these specific topics, how do you view the project of your book? What what were you up to in writing? I I should say that you you have a co-author on the book, Kevin Simler, who's not here tonight. But uh, what were you doing writing this book? This was
2: what I wish I would have known when I started my social science career many years ago. I started out in physics and uh, then went into computer science, and in those areas I noticed that people were really eager for innovation, and then I seemed to see that in social science uh, there were even bigger innovations possible, and so I moved there, and then I was puzzled to find that people were not very interested in innovations compared to the other areas, And. I kept also finding other puzzles in social science, ways in which our usual theories don't make sense of what's going on, and my book, our book, is uh, an attempt to explain a lot of the major puzzles in social science and the lack of interest in innovation. And one of the conclusions is that we're just doing policy wrong, <laughs> policy analysis wrong. Um, but first, we have to get into the basics here.
0: Well, so and there's really two levels of it. There's there's how you, as a person, might think about these things, but it's the level of personal hypocrisy and then the mismatch between what your motives actually are and what you may think they are. And then there's this, the fact that institutions have this kind of structure or this, this blindness where the institutions think they're about something and they seem not to be upon analysis. An institution like medicine or, or a university or... or um, so what's the basic problem? Why is there this, this mismatch between what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing? So if you've read many psychology books, you're familiar with the
2: idea that people are not always honest about what they're doing and why. And uh, you might find that trite and and kind of boring by now, because of course, we all know that. But so far, people haven't taken that insight to our major social institutions. And that's what we think is new and original about our book. We say that uh, not only are you not always honest about whether you like to go to the opera with your spouse or whether you enjoy playing and cleaning up after your kids, you're also not honest with yourself about why you go to school, and why do you go to the doctor, and why you vote, uh, and why you do art. (laughs) That is, these uh, deviations between what we think we're doing and our actual motives uh, infect many major social institutions, and they therefore should make us reconsider the basics of what these institutions are for, and, and therefore why we support them, and whether we should subsidize them, and how we should structure them, and everything.
0: Right. So, unlike many conversations I have here, I have a a, a list of nouns that I just that are kind of a, a ladder through which we could we could walk. Uh, let's start with norms and and what you call meta norms. So what is a norm, and what, and why do we have them, and what and what does it mean to to protect them, or or to fail to protect them? So
2: animals like chimpanzees and most other social animals, they have a complicated social world, and they pay attention to each other, and they reward others for helping them and punish others if they hurt them. So they, they have many regular behaviors, but humans uniquely have norms in the sense that we have a rule of what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And if somebody else sees you breaking the norm, it's a rule that they're supposed to do something about it. They're supposed to tell other people that you've broken a norm and then try to find a way to make you stop breaking the norms. And so humans have these norms about what we're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And many of these norms are quite common around the world. We're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to not brag, not um, be violent to each other. We're supposed to make group decisions together by consensus. Mm. And we're not even supposed to have uh, subgroup coalitions, uh, people who are aligned against the others. These are just common human norms. And many of these norms are expressed in terms of motives. So there's a rule that we're not supposed to hit each other on purpose. It's okay to hit accidentally, but not on purpose. And so uh, we are, because our ancestors had these norms and they were so important, their social world was their main world. uh, We developed these big brains that we have mainly, apparently, for social reasons. We developed these big brains to deal with our social world. And we have the biggest brains of all, so our social world must have been the most complicated, Uh, But norms were a big part of this world, and so we have this part of our brain that's all the time thinking about what we're doing and trying to explain why we're following good motives. Mm -hmm. and, And that's, in a sense, the conscious part of your mind. You are the conscious part of your mind, and you aren't necessarily the one in charge of your mind. There's this idea that instead of, say, being the president or the king, you're the press secretary. You don't actually know why you do things, but you're supposed to make up a good excuse. <laughs> and you do that. You're constantly looking at what you're doing and asking yourself, what would be a good explanation for this thing I'm doing? <laughs> and you're good at that. You're good at coming up with excuses for what you're doing. But you don't actually know what you're actually doing. But you don't realize that you don't know.
0: Uh, yeah, and uh, this is a, a, a very um, robust but not really celebrated neurological finding. And this it, it becomes horribly elaborated in people who have what's called a split-brain procedure, where as a, as a remedy for grand mal seizures, you, you can cut the corpus callosum, which connects the, the two hemispheres of the brain, and that prevents the seizure activity from moving from one hemisphere to the other. And what people have found going back now many decades is that the left... Most people, the left linguistically agile hemisphere confabulates reasons for doing things when those reasons are brought out in an experimental paradigm. Those reasons are just manifestly not so. So you can present the right hemisphere of the brain with a demand, like, you know, get up and, and walk toward the door. And then you can ask the linguistically competent left hemisphere, why are you walking toward the door? And it will confabulate. A reason, like I want to get a coke, this is a result from a classic experiment which I think you cite in your book, uh, these experiments were done by, by um, Roger Sperry and, and Michael Gazzaniga and Aaron Zidel. and the left hemisphere just continually completes the picture linguistically without any apparent awareness that those claims are out of register, they're based on nothing, they're just, they're, I mean, this is what the word confabulate means, just to to just make up this, this reason out of whole cloth. And it seems that, I mean, though most of us have not had our brains split, we have an ability to give a post hoc rationalization for why we did things, which in, certainly in an experimental paradigm can be shown to really have no relationship to the proximate cause of our actions. And it is embarrassing if caught on video. So we're living with this fact that we are our own press secretary, giving the, at minimum, the most benign, but often just the the most grandiose and apparently noble rationale for why we're doing what we're doing, and yet evolution and, and other modes of logic suggest that that isn't the reason for why we do much of what we do. Well, since you are in the habit of just
2: making up excuses, that means you could be wrong a lot, but doesn't mean you are wrong a lot. Maybe you are mostly right, even though you would be wrong if you didn't know. So we have to go further than just the possibility of your being wrong to decide you're wrong. Yeah. So we have to wonder well, how sure can you be about most of your activity, uh, whether it's the real reason you have? Now, now one thing to be clear about is. Almost any area of life, like going to school or going to the doctor, is big and complicated, the world's complicated, so a great many motives are relevant. And if we average over people, surely thousands of different motives are relevant for almost everything we're doing. And so what we have to be asking here is, what is the main motive? What's the most dominant motive, not what's the only motive? So, I mean, just as an example, if you say the dog ate my homework as an excuse, that only works because sometimes dogs eat homework. (laughs) If dogs didn't exist, it wouldn't make much sense. (laughs) Dragon ate my homework, doesn't work. So these things that we come up with as excuses for our behavior, they only work as excuses because sometimes they're true. They have an element of truth. So we're not going to say that your usual motive isn't at all applicable. The claim is just, it's not as true as you think.
0: And, and you're not saying that no one has noble motives. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there are there, there is real altruism, there's real nobility. There's real, all of these things, yeah. exactly.
2: Sometimes people get up to get a Coke.
0: Yes. But in addition, there there are evolutionary reasons why we would be self-deceived about our motives we're actually and this is based often on the work of robert trivers who's done a lot of work on self-deception and and the evolutionary logic there we we are better at deceiving others we're better at getting away with norm violations if we in fact are not aware that our press secretary is not telling the truth which is to say that if we in fact are self-deceived we are better Deceivers. So, if we want to lie, it's better not to know we're lying, because then we seem sincere.
2: Right. Well, you can be sincere. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The easy way to
2: seem sincere is to be sincere, even if you're wrong. <laughs> sure. It's a famous well, uh, Seinfeld episode, I believe. Uh,
3: <laughs> you're not
2: lying if you believe it. Yeah. I, believe they said.
0: <laughs> I should say that basically, uh, this, this is something you and I should probably talk about, but the jury's out as to whether or not knowing any of what we're about to talk about is good for you. So
2: this—sorry.
0: There's a psychological experiment being performed on you, and you have not consented. So memory wipe pills will be available after the session. So, so how do you think about? Let's take cheating as cheating is a classic norm violation. There's reason to think that our brains have evolved in large measure to both to cheat and to detect cheating and others. How do you think about cheating in your line of work? Well, uh, cheating is, again, violating norms,
2: and so we want to live in a community where the norms are enforced, and we also want ourselves to be exceptions to the rules. Uh, so for example, you know most criminals actually think crime is a bad thing. Uh, they just think that their particular acts don't quite count as crimes. So, uh, we all basically would like to make exceptions for ourselves. So the question is how, and one of the ways we can do it is to not be very honest about what we're doing with ourselves.
0: This, this may not be relevant, but it just put me in the mind of I've never understood why no one remarks on the fact that... When we think of it like just reducing our speed limit laws, what that would do in terms of saving lives, and we could, we could save tens of thousands of lives a year, but if we, if we made cars that could not exceed the speed limit, that would guarantee that no one would exceed the speed it limit. Would. But no one would want that. No, no one, no, no one, one who it. thinks that we should yeah, have speed limits would exactly. want a car that it would slavishly follow the speed limit. How, what, how do you make that? We, we all—is that just synonymous with wanting the right to cheat on the speed limit? So, um, I mean, are we all imagining some emergency where you have to speed past the, the speed limit. So,
2: the whole theme here is that in your head you think you want things. So in your head, you think you want to enforce speed limits. With your actual actions, you don't. You want to speed, and there's a contradiction there, and you don't want to look at that contradiction, so you look away. And that's the elephant in your brain. As you know, the elephant in the room is the thing we all know is there that you don't want to look at. And the elephant in your brain is this contradiction between what you say you want and what you actually do.
0: So let's actually raise this issue now, whether this this line of thinking or this analysis has a downside, so if in fact it's true that we are better fit to our social environment with a certain amount of ignorance with respect to our own motives, so that, we, that it's optimal, there's, there's like an attractor of optimal fitness which, is, which, which entails some measure of self-deception, and we are in the process, you in the process of writing this book, all of us in the process of talking about it, are to some degree undeceiving ourselves about these things, why isn't that bad for us? And is, is, that, is it worth worrying whether it's, it's bad for us?
2: So apparently evolution constructed you to be ignorant about why you do things. <laughs> it thought, yes, it might be useful if you know why you do things, but that's to be traded off against all these other benefits of not knowing why you do things. So you were constructed not to know. If the situation you're in in the modern world is much like the situation evolution anticipated for you, that's probably better in your personal interest, not knowing. <laughs> you're probably better off going on with the usual sort of ignorance that the rest of us have had and acting that way because you'll get along that way, and that's what evolution anticipated for you. Now, evolution couldn't think of everything, so you could be in an environment today which is not something evolution might have participated or you might be in an unusual situation. For example, you might be a salesperson or a manager, uh, the sort of person for whom it's really important to understand people's motives and to be able to read them and understand what's going on. You also might be a nerd, <laughs> like myself, That is, most people can just intuitively read the social world around them and do the right thing. Some of us can't, and some of us need more conscious analysis of the world to figure out what's going on. And so you may appreciate this more cynical conscious analysis, even if it has some disadvantages.
0: But most importantly... As a self-help seminar, I think that's not going to sell a lot of tickets. Not that
2: you'd be nerds or anything, but some of us are. But I also just think if you're going to be a specialist in policy analysis, if you're going to stand up and say, I have studied education or medicine and I have thought about what changes would be better, it's more your responsibility to know what's actually going on in those worlds, even if it costs you some degree of social awkwardness to know that. Uh, I think at least social analysts and policy analysts should understand these things.
0: Yeah. So so let's take an institutional example. Take education. What is it that we're deceived about? With respect to education. So, again,
2: just to be clear, just because you might be deceived about many things doesn't mean you are. So, I need to walk you through arguments to convince you that, in fact, in each area, your motives isn't what you think it is. Now, my colleague, uh, beloved colleague, Brian Kaplan, has a book just out called The Case Against Education, and he goes through a whole book like the treatment of this. Our chapter is just a summary of that, but a summary is sufficient. <laughs> the summary is When you ask people, why do you go to school, if they are answering in front of a public speech or in a letter of application, say, they will tell you the usual story is to learn the material so that you can become a more useful person later. That's our standard story about school. And there are a number of puzzles in education that just don't make sense of that theory. And I'm going to offer another theory that makes more sense. it. Some of these puzzles are, you don't actually learn very much at school. (laughs) Most of the stuff you learn isn't very useful. Yet, people who uh, don't learn useful things are paid more. So, bartenders who go to college make more than bartenders who go to high school. Uh, You do make more for more years of school in terms of your wages, but the last year of high school and the last year of college is worth as much as the other three years combined. But you don't learn more in the last year of high school or college. Uh, I went to Stanford for a while for free without registering or applying simply by walking in and sitting on classes. One of the professors, gave me a letter of recommendation, based on my performance. (laughs) Nobody tries to stop you from doing that. Why? You can get the very best education for free if you don't want a credential. That calls into question the idea that you're there for the learning, as opposed to something else. Uh, So the alternative theory is that you're there to show off and to gain a credential that shows that you are worthy of showing off, that is, you are smart, conscientious, conformist. You're willing to do the sorts of things that you, they ask you to do. You take ambiguous instructions with long deadlines, and consistently over several decades, over several years, uh, complete mildly boring assignments. <laughs> Great preparation for future workplaces. <laughs> uh, and by the end, you have shown that, and that's something employers value. And that's a standard, plausible explanation for education. Most of you will find that at plausible unless you are an education policy expert. In which you will be, in case you will be offended, <laughs> and search for another explanation. So in most of these areas, most of you will nod and say, yeah, that makes sense, unless this is your precious area. For all of us, there is something precious in our lives, something sacred, and for that, we will be more reluctant to accept one of these more cynical explanations of what's going on there, but as long as education isn't sacred for you, you'll probably nod and say, yeah, you don't learn much in school.
0: But so now, what is signal and what is noise? There are, are employers wrong to value those things. Should should people? Well, what should people do differently as a result of understanding this about the? Individually, status quo? you shouldn't
2: do different. If individually, if you want to convince an employer in our world that you have what it takes, you do need to go to school, jump through the hoops, and perform well. And in fact, you might do that better if you aren't aware that you're just doing arbitrary things to show off to an employer. That may be demotivating for you. You might be better off pretending to yourself and believing that you're learning. It be useful. Uh, but the point is you are showing that you have a characteristic, not creating a characteristic. The school isn't changing you. It's distinguishing you. It's like certifying you as
0: different. So now, what, what's the role of common knowledge in some of these situations? You should, you should define what common knowledge is. It's not common knowledge. What common knowledge is So, think about
2: cheating. He asked about cheating. And think of the rule that you're not supposed to drink alcohol in public. This is a rule, and uh, there are people who are supposed to enforce this rule, the police. And you might think uh, this, of course, uh, is relatively easy to enforce. Uh, But think of the example of people putting an alcoholic beverage inside a paper bag and drinking it outside. (laughs) This happens. Now, ask yourself, how hard could it be for the police to know that you're drinking alcohol if you're drinking some bottle in a paper bag out of Of course they know. But you're giving them an excuse to look the other way. That is, that's not common knowledge. We don't know that we all know that we all know that it's alcohol. <laughs> Somebody could be fooled, and that's enough to pretend that you don't know.
3: So this is
2: why it's actually much easier to cheat in many ways than you might have thought. <laughs> We have all these rules and we're supposed to enforce them, but we're not very eager to enforce them. We'd rather go about our own business and ignore the rule violations. And so a rule violation needs to be kind of blatant. And we other people need to see us see the rule violation, and then we kind of feel forced to do something about it. But if it's not blatant, it's not something we all can see and know that we know, then you might prefer to pretend you didn't see. And many of you probably have seen things that are not supposed to happen as you walk by the street and you just keep walking, hoping that nobody saw you saw it, because then you could pretend you didn't see it and go about your business, because it would be a pain and trouble to stop and try to enforce the rules.
0: Yeah. Well, also, there's, there's so much about our social lives where we know there's a subtext to what's going on, but if that subtext ever became explicit, exactly. it would destroy the basis of trust or good feeling, or like if, if you said to someone... I'm only inviting you over to dinner tonight because you invited me last time and I needed to reciprocate. Right, I, exactly. You know, that, that's why we're having this dinner. On <laughs> that, that, some level, that we all know that's going on, but to make it explicit is sort of antithetical to, to being friends with people.
2: Right. So there are, there's often many levels of what's going on, and in fact, uh, we expect to see that in movies and stories. So uh, if somebody as an actor was given a script and the script said uh, you're at a romantic dinner with uh, somebody else and the two of you are there talking to each other and what you're saying to each other is I love you, I love you too, this is great, we're having a wonderful relationship, this is a wonderful restaurant, isn't this a great night? The actor will tell you I can't act that (laughs) because there's just one level there and that doesn't seem plausible at all. We expect in a scene like that to, to be multiple levels. That is, there's the surface level of, I love you, isn't this great, and something else must be going on. And the actor will actually look for another level so they can act the scene. I'm afraid you'll leave me, so I'm trying to make sure you don't. Or I'm thinking of leaving you, and so I'm trying to let you off nice. (laughs) Something to make there be two levels of motives, because that's what we expect to see out of actors and scenes. So we are really, at some level, we kind of know that people are quite often pretending one motive and really acting another motive.
0: Hmm. It's one thing that one chapter in your book on conversation, which I found fascinating, because conversation is fairly mysterious in terms of the mismatch between what we think is going on and what is actually going on, and why it would be valued in, in an evolutionary sense. So let's talk about the, what what most people think is going on during a conversation, and what right. seems to actually be going on. So we're going meta here,
2: because of course this is a conversation, yeah. <laughs> and we will try to pretend that this isn't true about our conversation, because that's the social aspect of it.
0: Uh, the jig is up.
2: <laughs> exactly. So uh, the usual story, if you ask why are you talking to your friend, why did you spend an hour talking, why didn't you do the dishes or something useful, <laughs> you might say, well, we're exchanging information. Uh, we have each have information, the other person doesn't, and by talking and exchanging information, we can all know more. And this is the standard rationale for most of our conversations. This What I'm about to tell you applies not just to personal conversation, but also applies to our news media conversations, to academic conversations and journals. In all of them, the standard rationale is information. That's why you read the newspaper, of course, right, to get more information. Now, there are many features of our conversations that don't fit very well with this explanation. That's, again, my main argument here is to show you the detailed puzzles that don't fit with the explanation, then offer you another explanation that fits better. So some of the puzzles here are... Uh, if it was about exchanging information, we would keep track of debts. I might say, well, I've told you three useful things so far, you haven't told me any useful thing, it's your turn. <laughs> we would be more eager to listen than to talk. It would be our turn to talk and then sigh, okay, I'll fine, I'll tell you something. We would be searching for the most valuable things to tell each other, the things that mattered most to each other, and we would talk about important things instead of the trivialities that we usually fill our conversations with. And it would be fine to jump from topic to topic as long as we were saying something valuable and important, because the point is to communicate information. But as you know, the usual norm of conversation is to slowly drift from topic to topic, none of which need to be very important, but each, each time we should say something relevant to that topic. Now, an alternative explanation in sharing information for this theory is that we are showing off our backpack of tools and resources that we can show we can bring to bear to any topic you dare to offer. So, it's important that that the conversation meander in a way no one of us can control, so that we are each challenged to come up with something relevant to whatever that is. And by impressing you with knowing something, having a friend or a resource, having a tip, having some experience that's relevant to whatever you bring up, I show you that if you and I stay allies and associates in the future, whatever problems you have, I'll have something relevant. I'm ready for you with resources that would be useful to you, because look what I can do no matter what conversation topic comes up.
0: Yeah, well, the, the, the mismatch between desire to listen and desire to talk is pretty, I mean, I think that's the one that people will find very salient because if it was really about just getting information, we would be massively biased toward listening. We would be right. stingy with, I mean, we would be pricing out all of our disclosures. We'd have much bigger ears and smaller mouths. Yeah. <laughs> So, so then how do you think about gossip and reputation management, and, and what's happening in that space?
2: We we do, in fact, exchange information. <laughs> yeah. So again, it works as an excuse because it's partly true. We do exchange information, and it is somewhat valuable. It's just not the main thing we're doing. Uh, but often, well, the information we're exchanging is meta to the actual apparent topic. <laughs> as you may know, uh, indirectly th- through what people say. They tell you other things like bragging about themselves indirectly by telling you about their great vacation in some expensive, (laughs) rare place. Uh, And they talk about each other, uh, often in the guise of saying what's been happening. But we are very interested in knowing about each other and evaluating each other. And so part of what's going on when we're impressing people is we're not only impressing the people who immediately see us, we're impressing the other people who, who will hear about it indirectly, and so it's important that we impress other people in ways that can transfer through through that gossip to the other people who will hear about it. And and we are trying to avoid negative gossip or negative reputation of things that would make us look bad. And this is, you know, a basic explanation for why a lot of decisions in the world are really quite shallow. (laughs) So, So, for example, as an employer, you might look at an employee and say, Uh, This this potential employee looks really good. Yes, they don't have a college degree, but they don't need a college degree for this, and I can tell they could do the job. But then you might think to yourself, but yes, but other people will hear that I hired this person, and they will notice that this person doesn't have a college degree, and they will gossip about it. And then I might look bad for having hired someone with a a college degree, and maybe I just don't want to take that chance. So even if I know that this person could do the job, I still, because I'm trying to impress this wider audience, who will gossip about it, I, I am pushed to make shallower choices based on less than I know.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you do differently in this area based on having thought about this? I mean do you, do you view gossip as a negative character trait that should be discouraged in yourself or do you, or do you just see it as inevitable or, or socially useful as, as a way of of correcting misaligned reputations? I understand and
2: appreciate gossip has an important human role. As a natural nerd, <laughs> I'm not as inclined or interested in it personally, but that's my failing, not the world's.
0: How, so, is is social status the kind of the main metric that to which all of this is is pegged? Is that what we're concerned about as as subtext virtually all the time?
2: It's one of the things, but it's actually less than people might think. Um, so. Uh, many of if if you're forced to admit you're showing off, often the thing you want to admit to showing off is how great you are. <laughs> uh, that is how smart or conscientious or or careful, uh, how knowledgeable. But plausibly, uh, at least half of what you're doing in showing off is showing off loyalty, not ability. Mm. And so perhaps plausibly we we push medicine in order to show that we care about people. we participate in politics to show that we're loyal to our side. We do a lot of things to show loyalty, and and that is not something we're as eager to admit Uh, because, of course, by trying to be loyal, we are showing some degree of submission to those we are trying to... Yeah, so
0: that is a a somewhat craven motive to to sign on to, I'm being loyal, right? Right. (laughs) But why is that? In fact, loyalty is a virtue that we, we... so, humans actually have
2: two different kinds of status, and it's suspicious and noticeable that we don't make the distinction very often and we merge them together. There's dominance and prestige. Uh, dominance is more having power over someone, and prestige is earning respect. And the difference of these actually show up in where your eyes go and how you look. You're not spo- when somebody has dominance over them, you are not supposed to look them in the eye. Looking them in the eye shows defiance. When somebody has prestige, you are supposed to look at them. Uh, they are like... We presumably, up here, you are looking at us, we are claiming we have prestige, uh, and you're not supposed to look away at us. I, w- I,
0: I wish you? you wouldn't put it that way. Yes, well... <laughs> How embarrassing. Uh, and so, people want
2: to get prestige and they don't want to admit to accepting dominance or, or submitting to dominance, but of course we do. And so, But, but example, do,
0: do people admit to wanting prestige? More so.
2: Uh, they might admit to accepting prestige, although not to seeking it, Right. of course. Now, you know, in ancient history, most societies had kings and their neighbors had tyrants. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: tyrants dominated because they, bad guys over there, had dominance and those people were submitting to dominance and what a terrible thing they had to suffer. But we have a king who has prestige and it's okay for us to look up to and obey our king because he's worthy of the status. And so uh, this is often how people come to terms with their bosses. So from a distance, uh, People say how terrible it is that we all obey our bosses at work, but each of us at work often makes peace with that by saying, well, my boss is okay. Mm. He's earned that right to be in that role,
0: and I'm okay with doing what he says. Right. So now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on politics, but obviously everything you've you've written about is relevant to politics, and as I was reading the book, it it seemed somewhat mysterious to me that in in the current moment, someone like Trump seems to violate more or less every rule you mention in your book. I mean, the the things we've evolved not to do, or not to do brazenly, like brag, right? Or lie without any hope of being believed. Yeah. (laughs) Or... Or advertise our most crass motives in place of more noble ones that could have been plausible, right? Right. He seems to get away with all of this. So how do you explain the success of, of, what's essentially the the uh, (laughs) anti-evolutionary algorithm. (laughs) Sure. So let's start with something called counter-signaling.
2: So um, ordinarily, if you have an acquaintance and you are trying to show that you like an acquaintance, you will do things like, you know, smiling at them, being polite, flattering them, opening the door for them, offering them some food. Those are ways we ordinarily show someone that we are trying to be friendly. Mm. Um, When you have really close friends, however, often you go out of your way to do the opposite. (laughs) You insult them. You trip them. (laughs) You don't show up for some meeting. Why do you do the opposite for a close friend? So that's in part to show that you are more than an acquaintance. Once it's clear that you are at least an acquaintance, people might wonder, how close are we? And doing the opposite can show hmm. that you are more than an acquaintance. You are. The, 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 a paper that uh, discussed this was called Too Cool for School. As you know, many students try to show how studious, how good they are at school by studying hard and doing well. And then some students try to show that they can ace everything without trying. <laughs> and that's, again, counter signaling.
0: So, so he's managed to convince half the country that he's their best friend by, by oh, revealing no. all of these.
2: But remember, politics is about loyalty signaling, mm. and uh, at one level, we might all want politicians who are high status, we might all want politicians who are articulate and tall and went to a good school and, and, and smart and say all the right polite things and have salmon, et etc. And so in general, we would all want the same thing there. But if you want to show that your side is different and you are being especially loyal to your side, you may have to go against the norm. So, As you may know, when the election of Trump, uh, there was a subset of our society who felt neglected, who felt that their voice was not being heard and that the politician establishment was not catering to them. And so Trump stood up and said, I will cater to you. And he went out of his way to show loyalty to that group by counter signaling in many ways, by doing the opposite of what an ordinary politician might do to appeal to everyone, to show I really am appealing to you, and you in particular, and I'm going out of my way to raise the cost of appealing to other people, mm. to appeal more to you, to show that I really am loyal to you. Right. And he did convince that group that he, had, he was unusually loyal to them, and they voted for him on that basis, and he has successfully counter-signaled his way into the presidency, the rest of the world, and other people are saying, but this is not the usual leader, and of course, the people who voted for him said, yes, that's exactly how I knew he was trustworthy on my side, is that he counter-signaled the usual signals of overall political competence. (laughs) 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 But we often do that to signal loyalty. We often go out of our way to pay costs to signal loyalty. So one of our chapters is on religion, a topic that I know (laughs) my (laughs) guest host up here has written a lot about. And one of the standard stories about religion is you may uh, agree to unusual rituals and to believe strange things in order to convince people that the the people you share those rituals and strange beliefs with, that you are tied to them, and that it will be expensive for you to leave them, and that they can therefore rely on. Hmm.
0: Well, actually, viewing back to Trump just for a second, view, viewing a lot of this through the lens of loyalty explains a few other things. Because when you when you look at how people in his inner circle, or you know people who have to function like his press secretary. Try to make the, the, with as brave a face as possible, try to put some positive construal on his lying or his mistakes or his, his misrepresentations of fact, that does function as a kind of loyalty test. I mean, whenever you're just, when people with real reputations have to get out there and, you know, put both feet in their mouths uh, so as to pretend that the president didn't do likewise, uh, it is a kind of, it, it is a kind of, I mean, it looks like a bizarre hazing ritual from here, but it does signal loyalty. But again, those
2: people across the border, they have tyrants and we have kings. Mm -hmm. It's easy to criticize the other side for being excessively loyal and submissive, but this happens all across the political spectrum. It's not just on the Trump side.
0: Yeah. I don't know what that yeah meant. I I wasn't accepting that at all. that was confabulation <laughs> case you, you were wondering. So now you're an economist by day. Let's spend a few minutes on incentives because it seems to me that many of the problems in our lives are the result not of bad people doing bad things because they're bad, but all of us good people or more, you know, more or less good people struggling to function in systems where the incentives are not aligned so as to to get us to do the right thing most of the time or make it easy enough to do the right thing. I think you have a line in your book about incentives being like the wind. I mean, you, you can decide to row into it or you can tack against it, but it's better to have the wind at your back. And so, so how do you think about incentives and what's the low hanging fruit here? But what, what is it that we could be doing differently in any area of consequence? That so our book is about
2: motives and money. <laughs> and power and respect are things we have as motives, and incentives are often aligned with those things. So uh, we often do the things that give us more of these things we want. But we'd rather not admit (laughs) that those are our highest priorities, and so we're usually reluctant to overtly just do what it takes to get the money or respect. So in most areas of life, we have to put some sort of gloss of some higher motive that yeah. we have to pretend we're trying to do, and that means often very direct, simple incentives schemes don't work. They are too obvious, right. uh, you know. Just like uh, your incentive to reciprocate the dinner, uh, that's an incentive you have, but you have an, also an incentive to not admit that too directly, right. because right. otherwise uh, you would force them to admit that they mainly wanted the reciprocation, and so. Uh, this is an issue with incentives that uh, many of the problems we have in the world beca- happen because we have insufficient incentives to do the right thing, but often that's because we don't want to admit how important incentives are, so we don't want to admit that we need incentives, so we don't restructure things to produce the incentives mm. we need, and uh, because we want to pretend we don't need the incentives. You know, so for example, you know, your doctor's incentive to give you the best treatment can often be compromised by the fact they might. When under one incentive system just want to treat you more just because they get paid every time they treat you, or in a, another incentive system might be to treat you less because they have to pay out of their pocket every time they treat you. <laughs> under either case, uh, their incentives might not be well aligned with you, but you could have set up some sort of more direct incentive system where, you know, they had a stake in your health, but you might not be comfortable with asking for that because That might show that you didn't trust your doctor. You might rather on the surface pretend like you trust your doctor and they trust you and and you have a nice, comfortable relationship. This is also a problem in financial investment, actually. An awful lot of people invest an awful lot in intermediaries who who take a lot of money but don't offer that much in return, Hmm. and people often just like the relationship they have with the intermediary, and they don't want a distrusting relationship that would have some explicit stronger financial incentives, so they accept a, a weak relationship. People often want to like feel like you had a relationship, and that relationship is degraded by the idea that you might had to <laughs> not have trusted them. Uh, I'm a researcher in academia, and most money comes in the form of grants, where they say uh, apply for the grant, and then they might give you the grant. We've long known that prizes are often more effective. A prize is where they say, if you do the following thing, then we'll give you this much money. And a prize can give stronger incentives for people to do things, but a prize is less trusting. Hmm. And you as the granting agency often want to just form a relationship with someone and then take credit for them as if we were buddies. And this prize sort of makes an arm's length distance where clearly I don't trust you if I'm going to only pay you if you do this measurable thing. And so, we'd rather have this closer relationship than to have a stronger incentive.
0: Is there a meta-level to many of these considerations where it can be reasonable to not follow the purely rational line through all of these problems? It sounds like what would happen is if we took all of this to heart, we would try to bootstrap ourselves to some new norms. That paid better dividends by, or you know, seem more rational economically or otherwise, you know, or in terms of like health outcomes, and yet, given human nature, we might find the price of anchoring ourselves to those new norms to be unacceptable for one reason or another. So the way I would summarize
2: this is to say, our usual institutions um, let us pretend to be trying to get the thing we pretend to want while actually, under the surface, giving us the things we actually want. Uh, Policy analysts typically try to analyze how to give policy reforms that would give us more of the things we pretend to want, and we're usually uninterested in that because we know we don't actually want more of the things we pretend we want. Uh, If you could design a policy reform that let us continue to pretend to get the things we pretend to want while actually getting more of what we actually want, we'd like that, But we can't admit it. If we stumble into it, we'll stay there. Mm -hmm. But if the policy analysts were just to out loud say, well, this is a system that will give you more of this thing is what you actually want, but admit it, don't you? We don't want to admit it, and then we won't want to embrace that. So yes, what we want to do is pay for the appearance of the Mm -hmm. thing we're pretending to want, and we're often paying a lot for that appearance.
0: Mm. I would love to see a transcript of (laughs) what you've just said there. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire kind of bonus questions here. I want to leave a lot of time for Q&A because uh, though conversation isn't about just exchanging information, you have a lot of information to exchange, and I want to get the audience involved. But uh, if you had one piece of advice for a person who wanted to succeed in your area of work, what would that be? I
2: am an intellectual, (laughs) and my measure of success would be insight. Uh, There are other measures of success. You could, you know, have a prestigious position, you could make a lot of money, you could get a lot of friends. Uh, But if the measure of success is insight, then uh, a number of strategies, one of which is just to look for neglected areas. So as we talked about in conversation, there's a strong norm in ordinary conversation to follow the conversation, to talk about what everybody else is talking about. And academics do that, news media does that, and we do that in ordinary conversations in a group of people. But for intellectual contribution, if you jump right in on what everybody else is talking about, your chance of making a large impact are pretty small. You're adding a small amount to what everybody else is talking about. If you go talk about what somebody else isn't talking about, find something important but neglected, your contribution can be quite large, even if you're not especially brilliant or well-tooled. Hmm. And so, one very simple heuristic, if you want to produce intellectual insight, is just to look at what other people aren't looking at that seems important and hope that later on they'll come around to your topic and realize that you did make a contribution.
0: But how long would you stay in that important area, (laughs) waiting for people to come around? You don't have to stay. You have to stay long enough to make a contribution,
2: and then you can Mm -hmm. go off looking for another area to make a contribution to.
0: What, if anything, do you wish you had done differently in your 20s, 30s, or 40s? You You can pick the relevant decade.
2: Well, I wandered around a bit, much like, uh, Sam, uh, in that I started my PhD program at the age of 34 with two kids, age zero and two. It's a relatively late start. That was, in some sense, the price for continuing to switch because other areas seem to be actually be more objectively important and have more promise. Uh, but as I said uh, before, this book that I'm uh, out with here is summarizing the thing I wish I would have known at the beginning of that social science career, which is that we are just often. <laughs> not honest with ourselves about our motives. So, uh, the thing I'm most known for actually is something called prediction markets, uh, betting markets on important topics. And they do work well, and they give people something they say they want, which is more accurate estimates and information on important topics. And it turns out people are usually not very interested in them, <laughs> even though you can show over and over again in many ways that they work <laughs> and they're cheap, et cetera. Uh, part of why I didn't realize that that would happen is I took people at the word for what they want.
0: So, and, so you wish you hadn't spent so much time on prediction? Well, I or? wish I would have understood the constraint that mm-hmm. people
2: are not honest about what they want and thought about that constraint when I was initially trying to design institutions. So right. I've you know, read many other ideas and worked on ideas for reforming politics and medical purchasing and uh, information aggregation, et cetera. And in each case, I assumed the usual story about what we're trying to do and worked out a better answer. And we actually can not only work out better answers, we can show them not only in math but in lab experiments and field experiments. We do actually know many ways to make the world better substantially, Hmm. and the world's not interested, most of them, because we know how to make the world better according to the thing that people say they want, to learn more at school, to get healthier at the hospital, to get more policy and politics, but in fact, emotionally, at people's heart, they kind of know that's not what they want, (laughs) and so they're not interested. So I wish I would have known that 20 years ago, and, and this book is hopefully to somebody at a younger career, somebody can pick this up. You, you might know a 20-year-old who's been saying for a while, everybody's bullshitting, this, nobody's telling the truth. <laughs> Where can I find out what's really going on? I'm hoping our book can be that book.
0: Mm. So 10 years from now, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in
2: your life? I mean. If I knew that, <laughs> I would presumably
0: be doing something different. <laughs> do, do you actually think that's true? Isn't that just one of the problems that, that you, like you, for well, instance, you I mean, know you want to lose weight, you know how to lose weight, but you still can't get the ding-dong the out of your The major would be if
2: I'm neglecting the long run for the short run, right? Hmm. I don't know if I am, but uh, yes, if, if I am neglecting the long run, then I would regret not investing more in the long run. But I, I am primi- primarily investing in this long run effort to produce intellectual insight. And I actually think there are scale economies in that. So, uh, the more fields you learn, the more mental models and and tools you have is to learn new fields. So you can actually learn new fields faster the more fields you have. So if if your intellectual project is to learn many fields and then find ways to combine the insights from them together, that's something you continue to do more and better as you get older. And so I'm I'm enjoying that wave Mm -hmm. and not thinking I'm over it all.
0: What negative experience, one that you would not wish to repeat, has been most valuable to you? Most valuable to me? Negative experience? Or or, or changed you for the the better, but it's got to be negative, you wouldn't want to repeat it. Well, uh, (laughs) so uh, early in my
2: academic career, I sort of really just failed to do the simple standard thing of applying to the best colleges. I'm not sure what went wrong, but somehow my family or me somehow just did not go through the process of applying to to good colleges far away. We just sent me to the local college, Mm -hmm. which was easy for me, Okay, Uh, too easy compared to my colleagues. So I had lots of free time. So perhaps I might have thought I should have gone to a more challenging college, and then people would have challenged me. But that made me who I am in the sense that with all that free time, I just started studying stuff on my own. Uh, I sort of made up my own topics and made up my own questions and, mm-hmm. and just started going in and working on things. Um, and so actually, I was a physics undergraduate major, and the first two years of physics classes are going over all the major topics. And then the second, the last two years are going off over all the major topics again with more math. And I had all these questions that the math was not answering. <laughs> and so what I did in the last two years of college was to just play with the equations. <laughs> just rearrange them, try in different ways, and by spending the semester rearranging the equations, I could ace the exams, uh, but I didn't do any of the homework, and so professors who had a formula like so much percentage homework, so much percentage exams, they, they you know didn't know what to do with me exactly, and so I got low grades in some classes. Although I was you know people were willing to give me letters of recommendations, but basically that formed me. That is, I became the person who didn't like do what I was told. (laughs) I wasn't following a path that people had led for me and I wasn't like going down, learning the things I was supposed to learn. I was just making up my own problems and my own questions and working them out for myself. And in the end, that has some advantages, but I'm not sure that was best overall.
0: Mm. I'm gonna put that in the bragging category. (laughs) 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 What? What worries you most about our collective future? We are collectively ignorant compared to what we could
2: be. We are a vast population, a vast world, a lot of smart people, very capable people. We have many great tools, and we just don't pull that together into a consensus that we can use very well. We fail to do something we could do quite easily. Uh, My work on prediction markets was one attempt. To try to create an institution which would allow us to collect what we know together effectively and efficiently. And it would work if anybody was interested, (laughs) but we're not very interested. And so part of my intellectual work is just try to diagnose, why aren't we interested as part of the understanding, how could we do better? Hmm. And I think this fact that we're all trying to show off to each other is part of it. Hmm. And if I ask, well, what's going wrong with our showing off? I would say the problem is we are showing off to audiences that are too ignorant. Uh, that is, if, if we focused on a really smart audience, a really knowledgeable audience, you're trying to show off to them, then it would be, uh, we would be forced to show off in better ways. So for example, we haven't talked much about it, but basically I, I've said medicine is mostly about showing that we care rather than helping people to get healthy. So when grandma's sick, you make sure she gets expensive medical treatment, the sort that everybody would say is the reasonable thing to do, even if it's not actually very effective. Uh, But as long as your audience doesn't know it's not very effective, they will still give you credit for being caring about grandma. If your audience knew that the medicine you were pushing hurt her instead of helping her, they would not consider you as such a caring person. (laughs) So the more that our audience knows about what actually works and has what effects, the more we would all be pushed to do things that actually had good effects, as as part of the process of trying to show off and show that we care. Uh, Similarly, in politics,
0: Actually, but before we move on to that, say more about the mismatch in medicine. How is it that we know, or how is it that you think you know, that it's more about caring than about results?
2: So again, the structure is a set of puzzles that don't make sense from the usual point of view. So it turns out um, we have data on variations in health and variations in medicine, and there's almost no relationship. (laughs) That is, geographic areas that spend more on medicine, or have people do more doctor visits, those areas are not healthier. We also even have randomized experiments, where some people have been given randomly a low price for medicine, and they consume more, and other people have a high price, and they consume less, less, and then there's no difference in health between these groups. So, at a very basic level, there's very little, if not any, correlation between health and medicine. Not only that, there are other things that correlate strongly with health that people show very little interest in.
0: Well, well, there must be a lower bound to that, though, because some medicine is life-saving. Clearly, right? Like, where, where are you yes. putting the, the line between? Well, it's not a line that is.
2: There's a whole mix of medicine, and some of the stuff helps, and that means other stuff hurts. Right. So, uh, if you could just get the stuff that helps and avoid the stuff that hurts, why then uh, you could do better. Uh, but people show relatively interest in doing that, and so some medicine hurts. Not only does it do zero, it on average hurts. Yeah. Uh, we are. Not interested in uh, exercise, air quality. But but what's the measure of people
0: not being interested in the information that would allow them to to get better medicine?
2: We have uh, experiments and studies where uh, people have been given access to information and asked if they would be willing to pay much for it and even just given it and seen if it affects their behavior. And consistently, if you give people privately information about the quality of medicine, they just aren't interested and don't act
0: on it. So, and they won't pay for it, right? They said certainly it. won't pay for it, exactly. Okay.
2: Uh, so there was a study of people about to undergo heart surgery where a few percent of people undergoing heart surgery die. So that means you face a few percent risk of death. Now, that should be a serious situation. They said, we have statistics on the local surgeons and the local hospitals in terms of what the percentage is of those patients dying there, and it varies by quite a bit. It's twice as much in some places than other places. Would you like this information? Uh, only 8% were willing to pay 50 bucks.
0: And, and those who were just given the information didn't act on it. Why is it that I think that everyone I know is in the 8%? Well, that's That's what they're pretending. Um,
2: a way to understand this is to think about Valentines, which happened recently. On Valentines, it's traditional to try to show that you care about someone by, say, buying them a box of chocolates. Now, when you do this, do you ask how hungry they are when you think about how large a box to buy? Uh, No, plausible, you need to buy as much chocolate as it takes to show you care more than somebody else, regardless of how hungry they are, which is like medicine. We just give people a lot of medicine, even though the extra medicine isn't very useful. And if you ask, well, how do I know which quality of chocolate to get? You know that you need to give a quality of chocolate a signal that's a common signal of quality. If you happen to privately know that this is a great kind of chocolate, or they happen to privately know a certain kind of thing is a great kind of chocolate, that won't actually affect whether you interpret this as a generous act. The interpretation of generosity is based on a common signal of quality. So if medicine is a way to show that we care, then similarly what we want is common signals of quality, we aren't actually very interested in private signals of quality of medicine, which is what we actually see.
1: Hmm.
0: All right, back to rapid fire questions.
2: (laughs) I'm I'm taking too long No, no, I've been asking
0: follow-ups as well. If you could solve just one mystery or problem as a scientist or economist, what would it be?
2: Ooh, that's too tempting. <laughs> well, because I should solve the big important mysteries like the uh, ni- you know puzzles of human nature, but I might, like I used to do physics, I might really want to go uh, figure out what's going on with uh, string theory or something just because it would be, might be cool to find out. I, I might admit I, <coughs> I will ask for the answer to the cool
0: question rather than the important one. <laughs> what possible motive could you have for that that you're not conscious of? <laughs> <laughs> if you could nominate one person as the smartest person who's ever lived, you have to put one human brain wow. against the aliens, wow. who would you vote? Of any generation? I- I'm going to hold an auction. <laughs> Taking bids. Okay. Oh, you, 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 I, I you could would,
2: make a you, lot of money off you, you, you would crowdsource it? If I could put up somebody yes. as the smartest person in the world, then anybody would believe me. People would pay a lot for yes. that status. So I'm, I'm really going to put that out for auction.
0: You, you don't have a, a... I don't really
2: care who's the smartest person.
3: Right.
2: <laughs> I care much less than they do. I care much more about who's the most accomplished. And I actually think it's a problem that people are so focused on showing they're smart and not focused enough on showing they're accomplished. I would rather people right. <laughs> uh, right. would try to do things.
0: Right. All right, well, I would love to uh, get some, some questions from all of you, because this is, a, this is a great opportunity to make this a real conversation. There will be two microphones uh, coming up in the aisles. We'll just go, we'll just start on the left and, or my left, and Hello. see how far we get.
1: Um, yes, uh, you were talking about um, what we uh, think we want, and what we actually want, and I, I've, uh, trying to ask my question in uh, terms of that, but do you think when it comes to a big issue like climate change, the, the way people mobilize, they're actually looking for something that they, they think that they want, but it's not what they actually want. Like they think maybe we should go back to a time where they romanticize about the earth being perfect and virgin and not touched by people to where um, when that's not really the point, when the point is we just need to get our carbon emissions down and sometimes people are blind to the actual solutions that are out there like mm. let's say nuclear power which uh people tend to ignore
0: we have a massive status quo bias as, that functions here and then there's also these these topics that seem to cut across political lines and there's you know the loyalty and the tribalism and, and a few of the variables we've we've invoked do you have a iconoclastic view of climate change that you want to express? The the question was phrased in terms of, we are are talking
2: as if we want one outcome, but perhaps there's another outcome we really want. But the claim we make in our book is you don't want outcomes at all. (laughs) You're being involved in politics not to produce outcomes, but instead to show your allies that you're with them. Because from your personal life, you have almost no personal influence on the world. (laughs) You're not going to change climate change, or the outcomes. But you will change how the people around you think of you. And that matters to you. So your goal is primarily to assure the people around you that you're with them, the people that, that you want to show that you're on their political side. So whatever they think is the thing that shows that you're on their side, you want to be for that, regardless of what kind of outcome that might produce. You don't even care whether it will produce an outcome. You want to show that you're with
0: them. Well, but, but if, they, if they were committed to outcomes that were obviously abhorrent, then presumably you wouldn't want to show that you were with them. Maybe so you'd want to be, be with somebody else. Perhaps. Right. but so, but Scott, so, so uh, you have to be selecting across outcomes on some level. So again, we're simplifying.
2: In almost all areas, many motives are relevant. These things only work as excuses because sometimes they're true.
1: Right. So yes, to some
2: degree, some people care about outcomes, but it's much less than we pretend. Hmm. Uh, and that's why people seem to be inconsistent about these outcomes. They're not paying very close attention. They're not creating a very... Thought well thought through integrated image of what they're trying to get. It's mostly a, a bunch of symbols that are being patched together that give the right
0: impressions. Right over here.
4: Thank you both for being here. The uh, conversation. I was going to ask you to apply your framework to uh, gun control, but I feel that your previous answer would address that. Uh, so I'll go to Jonathan Haidt and The Righteous Mind has a similar uh, construct uh, discussion. He has an analogy that happens to the elephant as well. But the the elephant is our moral intuitions, and we tend to react to our moral intuitions first in uh, post-hoc rationalization. Uh, Can you uh, comment on how you feel uh, moral uh, intuitions, maybe based on upbringing or surroundings, influence us outside of just loyalty, uh, the way we're raised, how that influences our rationalizations?
0: You reference Height. I, one way I disagree with him is that he has, his main point is that our moral reasoning is very lawyerly in, this, in the sense that we, we give a, a post hoc justification for, what, for our gut intuition. You know, they'll say abortion is wrong or, or gay marriage is wrong. We feel disgust, say. and then rationalize that after the fact. And then our, our reasons, the, the reasons that we give to others are are just rationalizations for something that's much more intuitive. I think, I mean, certainly that happens, and certainly that can be engineered into people's minds based on how they were brought up. So if you have it drummed into you from, from the moment you can understand human speech that homosexuality is a sin that merits hellfire. You know, there are religious communities that that talk this sort of talk well then it's it's no accident that you could grow up believing that and, and believing it strongly and and I so I even meet atheists who have been a, who have been atheists for decades who still have some kind of gut fear of hell right they're still worried on some level that they have to keep talking themselves out of a fear of hell this doesn't go right to a, a moral concern per se but it's not a surprise that you could get this any construct really drummed into you early and it could be durable but i think the thing that height seems to give not enough credit to is the, the power of rational argument to change people's views and, and to make those and to make r- really durable changes in their views so that you can be you know for capital punishment and then you can be reasoned to a new position and then be against capital punishment, and have those two positions be you know, stable and different, and, and you understand how you got from one to the other through reasoning. Yes, so, yeah,
2: so I, I'd say norms are very close to morals, mm. uh, and when you have a society in norms, you, you want to show you loyalty to those norms. You want to, show, you want to show that you believe those norms make sense and that they are logically coherent, and so if somebody can show you clearly enough that they aren't, you will, and make that public enough, you will feel an obligation to, uh, to switch to whatever closest version is coherent, because you want to claim not only that you're following norms, but that they are sensible norms.
0: Well, but, I mean, but also, many of us are organized around a, the norm of being rational and coherent. Right? So when you, when you yes. show me that I'm being incoherent, I tend to care about that more than I care about many other things, including the sunk cost of having had a position yesterday. And in a world
2: such as you're in,
0: where that is a strong
2: norm, then that strongly affects the behavior. So if your world doesn't put much weight on rational argument, then uh, that may not weigh very heavily heavily on you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But don't you think that we're in a position where we can argue that certain norms are better than others, given that they're scalable or that they, that, that they survive export to so others? C- certainly many sets of norms seem incoherent.
2: <laughs> so There is certainly a concept of coherence, mm-hmm. whereby if you say this is your rationality doing this, then if, they don't, if one doesn't actually achieve the other, that seems incoherent and it's open to criticism. But it, it, that may not uniquely determine a set of norms, but certainly there are incoherent norms that once the incoherence is explained, yeah, that, then it looks worse.
0: Yeah, then you're at war with yourself.
5: Uh, Good evening. As a uh, fellow social scientist, I feel like I sat through a uh, seminar without participating, so uh, thank you for taking my question. Um, So, my first question is, how do you feel like is the best way to translate academic research to actual policy? And second, one of the things one of my professors told me that really translated with me a few years ago was, the most dangerous thing to democracy is not receiving fake news, but receiving fake news and believing you're actually being informed. So if I could
2: get your thoughts on those questions, I'd appreciate it. Um, with respect to politics and policy, people would like to believe they're mainly focused on producing better policy, but they are in fact more focused on taking positions that will impress the people around them. That happens in academia as well. So, there are parts of academia that call themselves more policy-focused, but in fact, they have remarkably little influence on actual policy. <laughs> the actual policy and the makers in the world don't actually listen that much to the policy-relevant academics. <laughs> so uh, the first suggestion, if you want to influence actual policy, then you should go to talk to actual policy makers and get involved with them. Talking to academics who call themselves policy-relevant, you may not actually have much influence at all.
1: Hmm.
0: What, uh, how worried you, are you about... The fake news phenomenon, or or just what social media is doing oh, yeah. to us, or we're doing to ourselves with it. You should
2: just be worried about news. I mean, hmm. you should just pause and think: How can I believe any of this stuff? <laughs> a, a very basic, healthy intellectual attitude is to look at the large world around you and ask: What can I believe? And it's actually a hard question. Uh, we we are supposed to just assume that we can believe professors, or news media, or you know various authorities. And quite often we are just being gullible, uh, wanting to seem like good citizens, wanting to seem like responsible people and just believing the usual things. And often it's very hard to see why you should believe it. And so a a challenge for our society is to come up with mechanisms such that they are actually trustworthy, such that you do have good reasons to believe that. And that, that, again, was one of the purposes of prediction markets. It is a mechanism that you could trust for good reason. And so you might ask, well then, why do we seem to believe the news media? Uh, if it's not actually that trustworthy, and you might say, "Well, the whole point is to have a common thing to talk about," <laughs> and you, you know, if you don't at least take the news at face value, you can't talk with everybody else about the news.
0: But don't so, you th- don't you think that there's the incentives are aligned, at least to some degree, well enough in mainstream journalism? I mean, it's, to it's some it's, degree. You know, the New York Times is in competition with the Washington Post. That competition functions like like a fact-checking, peer-review process in some To some sense. degree,
2: but, but people are actually more gullible <laughs> than the rec- track record justifies. So, so there's an old uh, rule of thumb, which is try to remember the last time you were personally involved in a news event. <laughs> and then remember what the news coverage looked like of the event you were involved in and how did that compare to how it looked from your point of view. Mm. Typically people notice that in those events <laughs> there's a larger difference than they expected between uh, the reality and what the coverage was like. That's roughly the difference you should expect for all the rest of the news. It's, it's, there's still a correlation. It's not zero information, but you should just realize, you should also have this problem knowing whether you can believe academics, whether you can be, believe something like me on stage. You should pause and ask how you can believe any of this stuff. Uh, that's the first step to intellectual health, mm-hmm. and dealing with fake news is, is not being so gullible.
0: At a certain point, you have to rely on the diligence of others, otherwise, nothing, I mean, you just... Right. So try to live your lives
2: so that you don't have to rely too much on things that might not be true. Uh, one, one way is honestly just have fewer opinions on things. We're in a society <laughs> where there's this norm that you're supposed to have an opinion on half of everything you hear, and just don't do that. Just be agnostic about things you haven't looked into. <laughs> Pick your specialty, yeah. learn about a few things and know that well, and then tell other people what you don't. And, and you know, find somebody you can roughly trust on the other things, but just stop having so many opinions.
0: <laughs> I love that advice.
4: Uh, gentlemen, thank you for your time. Not only tonight, but the way you spent it, meeting up Uh To both of you, what's the question that drove you into the work that you, that you began to do? And what's a, a question that makes you curious and drives your work today?
0: I, I rarely frame it in, in the form of a question, but it, is, it, is a, it has a question shape that underlies most of what I'm doing now, which, is, which is, is how can we have better and more fruitful conversations? I just see conversation being the the only tool short of violence that we have to get major change happening in the world. And when conversation reliably fails, then you just see, all of the needless misery and disorder that we see in the news. It actually touches a point you raised before, which I I never quite heard it raised that way, which is that we want people to want different status signals. We're all winning points in a bad game, and we should try to figure out how to make better and better games, games where incentives are aligned, it becomes effortless to be far better than you would tend to be on your own, I, mean, I, really, I really think we could structure societies and institutions and norms of conversation where even the most mediocre people could function at a, at a kind of level of, uh, where only a saint in our current situation could function because the incentives would be better aligned. And So I, I see conversation being the, the, at least the, the lever I can get my, my hands around uh, to try to make some change this worth making.
2: I'm not going to find a better opportunity than this to pitch my other book. <laughs> the Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, When Robots Rule the Earth, I've been curious what would happen when robots rule the earth. and So I sat down and spent several years trying to work that out, and I'm working on another project of a different scenario. So I thought that was a fascinating question.
0: Yeah, this is a topic we did not cover, but Robin has thought a lot about artificial intelligence and, and has written and spoken in fascinating ways about it, so you should check that out.
6: Hello, Um, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for being here, Robin. It's uh, an honor to see you, Sam, for the second time live. Thanks for coming. Uh, I don't know if it's so much of a question, but definitely want to hear your input. I am an atheist, I am an immigrant, I am gay, and I am a millennial. Um, I'd be most worried about the millennial part. (laughs)
0: But time will cure that.
6: I don't know. Is it the millennial part or after just a day ago that I heard the whole Guns and Riddles podcast? Uh, Oh, the riddle of the gun, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the riddle of the gun, or if it's being an atheist and heading into the future and seeing these religious nutheads, as my adopted father would say, um, putting blame into atheists Uh, for something awful to happen. But that's not the point. The point here is um, immigration, and I am a dreamer. Mm. And I don't hear you talk about that enough, and I want you to talk about that. Yeah. because, Because I am an atheist and I am a dreamer, and combined with both of those, and being gay and being a millennial, I feel like it affects me and it affects many people. And right. I want you to just put something out there. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. for me, but for everyone.
0: Okay, well, I, I've spoken a little bit about immigration in the context of immigration in Europe. I mean, there's been a few podcasts on that, and I think I've said something, kind of a general view of immigration. I haven't thought a lot about immigration apart from thinking two things which may at first sound incompatible. One is I think, obviously, that most of the people here are here for good reasons and are functioning well in our society, doing jobs that we need done and that many people, many native born people, don't want to do. There's clearly a massive economic need for the immigration that we have and the, the immigrants that we have, legal and otherwise. And so I, I do favor something that would be called amnesty, or I mean, some some way of grabbing 12 million people, figuring out who is law-abiding, and making it okay for them to be here, giving them a legal status. I think that's one piece. The idea that you're going to deport millions of people and d- divide families, and I mean, all of that is just so ethically abhorrent to me. And even if you were only selfish. It's going to impose such a massive cost on our society that it just—it makes no sense any way you look at it. That's one piece. The other piece is I don't actually see a reason why we should want porous or otherwise indefensible borders. I think I, I think there is an argument for knowing who comes into the country. Yeah. Right. So we should. I, mean, I don't—I don't happen to be a fan of the idea of a wall, but if you could magically make a wall, I wouldn't stop you, right? It's like, is it worth making a wall? I don't know. But it's worth having a border that you can't get in but for the fact that the country wants you in, right? And then we, would, then we could have a rational policy to decide who we want in and who we don't want in and what the, what the process should be like and where you have to get in line in order to get in. So I, I'm not for open borders in any sense, but I am for recognizing the ethical problem as it is now, which is we have millions of people here who belong here. I mean, they've been here for years, in many cases decades even. They've had children who are citizens, you know, and and so it's just insane to think that we're going to deport people. And so I think there's a kind of a resetting of of the situation that would be possible with strong borders and and perhaps both sides of the aisle could get much of what they want if, if thought about in those terms. Do you have have an immigration idea? I
2: happen to personally favor more immigration, but I dislike the entire political scenario wherein you you just ask random people on stage to take random political positions on whatever the hot topic of the day is because we are then failing to be experts in something. I mean, I want to have a world where we each specialize in topics and each learn about the thing we know best and then we tell other people about that. So if you have no particular reason to think I know especially about immigration, it's more just the general political, the general pressure to make everybody talk about the topic of the day because we don't want to take sides. Whoa. So yeah. but I can actually tell you something original, so what I will say is the original thing I can say is there's a space of policies that people rarely consider. Uh, relative to just closed borders or open borders, there are a lot of other possibilities, and I think uh, considering that wider range of possibilities means there's there's things that are potential compromises, and the problem is people don't really want to compromise, they want to have this fight. (laughs) Uh, So I have this blog post a long time ago about uh, pulling the rope sideways. Uh, Often we set up these (laughs) tug-of-wars. where we're pushing closed borders, open borders. We all line up on the rope, pulling, pulling along the rope. And we, you know, if you step on one side of the rope or the other, you can pull with their side, but you won't make that much of a difference. But if you try to go grab the rope in the middle and pull sideways, nobody resists. <laughs> so if you can expand the space of possibilities and think of the other directions the policy could go, orthogonal to the one everybody's arguing about, there, you won't face that much opposition. You may not make that much... You know, support either. But there's just really this vast space of possibilities. so I'll just mention one, which is what if citizens, citizenship were a thing you owned and could sell? Hmm. And then uh, if you didn't have enough money for retirement, you could just sell your expensive US citizenship and go somewhere else, <laughs> <laughs> and you'd have this asset that was worth right. something. Right. Right? Now that doesn't make open borders free, but it's somehow like now somebody could buy the asset, they could buy their way in, you could sell your way out, and there'd just be a lot more possibilities. The point is that just think of a much larger space of possibilities than the usual tug-of-war.
0: Right. That's an interesting idea. But have you, have you heard an argument for why having a porous border where you don't know who's coming in and out of the country is, is some kind of optimum? You know, it's a complicated world, but
2: clearly at the level of cities and states, we do that. Right, so there's some yes. scale at which that's okay, right. and then there's an issue about what the right scale is. Right? So I, I, it is very noteworthy that people have very different attitudes about borders when we talk about cities and states than we talk about the nation. Yeah. And so often that isn't very well thought through. People are jealous of other nations you know, taking jobs, but not jealous of other states. Right. Uh, Interesting. Think about, why not be very protective about state borders or city borders? Do you know everybody who came into Denver? Do we know all of that? Should we know all
0: of that? Who could be coming into (laughs) 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 Denver? Right. Well, this is now just in service of my own education. How do you view the issue in Europe now with immigration, in particular with respect to the issue of terrorism and the civil war in Syria? You don't see a completely undefended and perhaps indefensible southern border to Europe to be a liability? that one would want to wish away if it were possible? I
2: don't know the details, so I defer. Okay. I, I am happy not having opinions on <laughs> any of these subjects. I will say clearly a lot of Europeans are concerned, and I don't think they're crazy. So you know, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to be concerned. But they, then they could be wrong. It could be that they are overly concerned, and they should be less concerned. And I just don't know. Okay. And I don't want to have an opinion on everything. <laughs> Good. I only want to express an opinion on things I've actually studied and I have something to tell you about. And I haven't studied that.
0: That's good, but you have a long line of people who are going to provoke you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sam, you stated that your uh, position on torture
4: is actually illegal, but it could be moral in narrow circumstances. You also suggest the idea of the APF, a system where you could get, get a warrant for, to torture someone.
1: Do you, mm-hmm. you still support that
4: system? Do you think it could be constitutional given?
0: Well, I, th- I think the simplest position here, which captures the way I still feel, feel about it, is that it clearly should be illegal. It clearly should be something we, we have a policy of, about not doing. But there are also clearly situations in which good people would be tempted to make bad people uncomfortable so as to get information from them when all else fails. And if a good person found him or herself in a situation that was that clear cut, so that he or she would be tempted to break the law, in fact, would feel like a moral monster not to break the law, right? where the person in custody was so obviously guilty and may even claim to be guilty, of monstrous things and things that are yet going to happen, you know, the, the classic ticking time bomb situation, that you can clearly think of a situation, these aren't all just thought experiments, these situations have actually existed in the real world. There's like a massive failure of imagination and empathy if you think those situations don't arise, where good people would be tempted to make somebody uncomfortable, i.e. torture. And my specific argument there was just to, to align that with the, with the obvious horror of collateral damage, which is something we all accept. I mean, the thing that was, was most misdefined to me ethically when I wrote that in The End of Faith was that we all accept, or most of us certainly accept the reality of collateral damage, which, however you line it up, is worse than torture. And yet we have some cues that I think mislead us. Um, I if mean, you, if, if you say, you know, which is worse, waterboarding the wrong person? or you know, blowing up that person and his family with an errant bomb, right? Well, clearly the errant bomb is worse, and yet the person who defends collateral damage just a, as just an unavoidable aspect of war is more or less everyone in government all the time. The person who would defend waterboarding some number of, uh, of people, even if we knew they were guilty, let alone the wrong people, would, would have their reputation destroyed. And so it was a kind of the mismatch of those two things that led me to write about that. But this is one of those topics that there's, there's very little upside to even touching it because it's not, you know, I mean, and the punchline is I do think it should be illegal. I just think if, if you don't think there's a situation where even you would be tempted to smack someone around in order to get information out of them, you know, you're not thinking clearly enough, so.
2: I mean, I'll just go meta on that, which is to say, uh, you know, if you have any simple rule like never torture or never lie, uh, that rule you can't be de- you can't defend in every case as not leading to good, bad, you know, leading to good consequences. If you're going to be a consequentialist about working through what works out, the world's very complicated, and almost any simple rule is just going to be wrong sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, but we have these simple rules as a way of handling norms. That is, humans have norms, which is ways of enforcing rules on other people, and. Those rules have to be enforced in cases where you don't know very much, and so we often have very simple rules we enforce because that's enforceable. And very complicated right. rules about doing torture in this situation and not that, et cetera, are just much harder to enforce, and that's why we have simple moral rules that in fact in each situation aren't the optimal thing to do. So then you have to make a choice. You know, do you want to just focus on letting people do whatever it takes to get the best outcome and make the arguments about that, or do you want to enforce simple rules like never torture or never lie, et cetera? It's a hard choice.
5: Uh, Sam, throwing your question back at you, um, what's the negative experience from your life that's had the greatest
0: positive impact on you, and how?
6: Mm
0: -hmm. I walked right into that, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Let's
2: see if he brags.
0: Yeah, well, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I might evade that. Well, I've had a few people uh, very close to me die early in my life. Obviously, I wouldn't wish that on anyone or wish that on myself, or, but I, I can see that confronting death, very, I mean, so the first one was that, that really mattered to me was a uh, best friend when I was 13. And that did something to me that I think was probably good. I mean, it put, it put kind of existential questions really foremost in my mind very early, and I, I, when, I, when I see the kinds of topics and questions and problems that have attracted me since, and just like what it means to live a good life and, and what is worth thinking about, I feel like I certainly could be very different than I am and, and have fewer tools that I value if I hadn't had those, those losses early. There's a silver lining to, to losing people close to you. As a kid, uh, that's, that's one, I, at least, I, again, I, it's a counterfactual, I don't know what, how, how I would be different, I, I could be twice as happy, and, <laughs> and I mean, you know, it could be fantastic, you know, but, uh, but I feel like I got kind of a firmware upgrade of moral seriousness at some point pretty early that was useful to me, so. Hi,
4: Sam, uh, I'm a big fan, uh, but my question is for Riley. Yep. Well, um, <laughs> we want to change our own behaviors, and one good way to do so can be simply to vocalize a noble version of our motives and desires, frequently <laughs> and loudly, is that the advertised versions of what we actually want to way. And since many of the motives we pretend to have in the stories we tell about our desires are constructed to be more virtuous and better for society than the other motives, motives, and even then much thought about how we might deliberately alter our operating system in a world where we succeeded in, in making the near stadium less accurate. and we can see through
2: in the New to so construct for ourselves. So, yes, you're right that uh, because we are trying to pretend to be better than we are, the more we can expose, you know, make our failure to achieve that visible to others, the more we'll be pressed to uh, do what we pretend, because otherwise it'll be too embarrassing to show the difference. So, uh, it's a dangerous strategy. <laughs> because you may just overreach and not be able to achieve the thing you claim. So we all know people who claim they are better than they are. <laughs> and uh, they don't rise up to the status of achieving this betterness. They just seem to be arrogant and uh, full of themselves. <laughs> so uh, you, know, you, you basically have two strategies when you notice this difference. You can try to raise your behavior up to your, uh, stand, your high ideals. You can lower your ideals down to your behavior. You know, most of us do a combination of both. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, basically, rather than, you know, lifting yourself up by your bootstraps, I think it's much more effective to change your context. So, so you're exactly right. The more you can make the people around you pressure you to do something, the more you might do that, that's much more effective than making a list and reminding yourself and mm. <laughs> practicing it. You know, you really just don't have that much willpower. But if the people around you will pressure you to do something, that will help That That's one of the reasons I, I suggest using betting markets. Betting markets make you honest because you now realize that if you aren't honest, you will lose money. That isn't what you usually face when you're arguing with people. So when you're usually talking, you're tempted to slide about the truth and make it sound good, but when you know money's on the line, you're tempted to be more honest. So that principle applies all over life. Uh, the more you can get people around you to give you incentives to do better, then the more you will do better. Or you will leave.
0: So, you know. You'll find a new set of friends when you <laughs> yes, fail you to know, yes. do the thing you said you were gonna do? Indeed, yeah. people do that. Hey, thanks for coming out to Denver. So um, your podcast, your books, these conversations have done a lot to help me change my mind on a lot of topics. Um, Indeed, I'm learning to enjoy the experience. Uh, The question I have for you is, when's the last time besides your conversation with maybe Majanawas that you changed your mind on something? And when's the last time where you've maybe changed someone's mind live in a conversation? Because you don't usually hear people kind of change their mind. Well, Actually, it was was my two most recent podcast, I think. So changing my mind, I mean, it's, this may seem like kind of weak beer uh, as an example of a change of mind, but it was, a ge- it was a genuine shift in my perception of of the political situation with Trump and in particular, the way I viewed the, the outcome of the election. I, I, I tweeted about this, so you may have heard this, but I just did a podcast with Neil Ferguson, who's far less worried about Trump than than I am. And in particular, he's he has a, a far darker view of what would have happened had Hillary Clinton won the election so he he thinks that there would have been you know massive social unrest that the election of Trump discharged a kind of uh, anger and agitation that that had to be discharged and it was and the election of Clinton uh, with just more you know people from Goldman Sachs staffing you know the, the cabinet would have brought a crisis that, that and again who knows who's right but I realized that in all of my worrying about Trump and my bemoaning the outcome of the election, I have spent very little time actually thinking about the consequences of Clinton getting elected. And that actually did something to me. And I, I, didn't go, I don't go on about it in the podcast, but I, I flag it in the podcast, and you can hear that if you, haven't, if you haven't listened to it. It actually dissected out an opinion that I sort of no longer have, which is I don't actually know what would have happened if Clinton had been elected, and I'm not, it could, could well have been as bad as Neil thinks. And, and, and Neil has a, a further story where he thinks it's actually it's going to be a good thing for liberalism that Trump got elected, and there will be, if you know, the left doesn't totally blow it, there will be a, a correction, a liberal correction to this moment that will be good for liberalism. And that that also strikes me as possible. So I don't see the the evidence of it yet. But so I actually have much less of an opinion about the badness of what happened last November than I did as a result of that conversation. And the, and the moment that I was I don't think it was it wasn't me that changed his mind, but it was, it was my podcast with, with Eliezer Yudkowsky who, who uh, Robin is friendly with. Neil deGrasse Tyson just gave a, a talk somewhere and Neil had been on my podcast and when I brought up the AI threat problem he said, well, I would just unplug it or I would take a shotgun and I would shoot it. <laughs> and I was trying to to impress upon him how how unrealistic that sounded, to no avail. But then Eliezer and I spoke about the alignment problem for two hours on the podcast, and so Neil quite graciously announced that that podcast had changed his mind. I think he was at some AI conference, and so that YouTube video went, I saw it on Twitter, and and Eliezer noticed it, and so anyway, so the conversations occasionally change minds, apparently. We have an N of two.
4: Hello, Sam. I'm the uh, captain of the Sam Harris Party Boat, at Facebook and oh, Nice, Twitter. nice. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Team, uh, we make a lot of memes about you. We love you. Uh, yeah, I've, seen, I've <laughs> so, seen those memes. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Yeah. We, yes. we, we have <laughs> made contact. It's great feeling. Oh. Really right. So my question uh, was harvested from this group of ours. Uh, what was the most profound thing that you, ever, that you ever changed your mind on? And what was it that was preventing you from changing your opinion before that
0: happened? Well, the most profound thing has to, I mean, it's, there have been many. I mean, I, I, certainly everything I wrote about in Waking Up falls into the category of changing my mind about something fundamental. I mean, I, had, I remember being an 18-year-old freshman in a great books seminar. I mean, this is before I ever knew that atheism was a category of, of thought. Right, I I wouldn't have referred to myself as an atheist, but I was definitely an atheist, and I was somebody who had zero sense that there could be any human experience that would justify anything that anyone had ever said in a religious vein. So, like, I I didn't have a spiritual or mystical or contemplative bone in my body. You know, then I took MDMA for the first time, and that changed. Uh, So, you know, I and then when I look at at who I was before that experience, I just realized I was, I was cognitively and emotionally closed to a range of, of data that was just, just awaited a, a change in my nervous system. And, and then I had, it was much more work to do to tr- try to make sense of that. But uh, I forgot, was there another question there? Or was that it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, so that was, that was a big one. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to change my mind about many things. I'm certainly worried that I'm wrong about Many things of consequence, and I'm constantly trying to put myself in positions where I could learn from people who know much more than I do on any given topic. So, and uh, you're all along for the ride for that because I mean, I'm just broadcasting these conversations quite recklessly on the internet. So, thank you. So, um,
3: Sam, you've, I believe you've, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you have said that the idea of an assault weapon. Is not a real thing. That's just kind of a no, a no, made-up concept.
0: No, that's that's not true. I, I mean, I've, I've said I've said some things that you could confuse with that because it's. I, I think it's it is a symbolic. so the idea of an assault weapons ban is not the real thing that deals with with the preponderance of gun violence. I, I mean, I, th- I think assault weapons in certain conditions are a very important variable in terms of how many people get killed. Yes, but. In many conditions, they're not, and people who are demanding an assault weapons ban, for the most part, tend to know nothing about guns and nothing about ballistics and nothing about you know, violence with guns. And you're literally talking about people who don't know the difference between automatic and semi-automatic guns. Okay, well, I'm one who does. Okay. So
3: I grew up in a, uh, in the fa- on a farm in the deep south. We had well over a dozen guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had several shotguns. We had several hunting rifles. But,
0: but so, what's your concern? What, what do you want me to admit to that I haven't? Admitted? Well, I,
3: I'm, what I'm getting at is, is with a, with an assault weapons ban, it, it feels like a uh, a game of well, no, let's don't ban those because that doesn't solve the entire problem. Well, that's but what can that's we why solve I said, as part yeah, of the problem?
0: That, that's why I said I, I support an assault weapons ban, but I also said, perhaps unwisely, by your metric. <laughs> that, that is just a sop thrown politically to the people who are calling for it because the, the much deeper issue is what do you do about handguns?
3: Right, but you start with what you can start with, Right, Right, but, I mean,
0: but again, like, it, it would be good to ignore. I think the reality would be we would get an assault weapons ban and make no other progress, and it would be a completely specious victory. That, I, I'll grant you that there are situations where, where having an assault weapon is hugely destructive and worth worrying about. So the Vegas shooting was the prototypical example there. He could not have done that with handguns. But so many other cases where we're, where we're talking about a lot, lots of people getting killed who shouldn't have been killed, it could have been an assault weapon, it could have been handguns, it wouldn't have mattered one way or the other. And we have to be honest about those differences. I mean, if you're not dealing... I mean, It's changed a little bit since I wrote The Riddle of the Gun. Uh, there have been more assault weapons used in, in mass shootings, but at the time I wrote that article, only 3% of homicides were committed with rifles of any kind. I think that m- might be up to something like 15% now. But still, you're, we're talking about handguns. So, but you're
3: basically saying we'd have to repeal the Second Amendment, if you're going to say got, that.
0: I have no religious attachment to the Second Amendment. Neither, neither do I, but, I mean, come out and say it. I've said that. <laughs> Believe me, the Second Amendment people... Send me angry emails too.
4: Uh, Robin, it seems that when it comes to religion, the research seems to suggest that believers uh, are operating on a different incentive structure than the simply stated goal of achieving some divine reward. Uh, or is it that they do wish to achieve the divine reward but for of selfish reasons?
2: So just to be clear, when I'm talking about motives, I'm talking about sort of the the ultimate explanation, the thing that structures the behavior, even if people aren't at all conscious of it. So I'm not talking about what's in people's heads, what they're thinking about. I'm talking about what formed and set their behavior. So uh, one of the things to know about religion is that, in fact, religious people are just better off on pretty much all our standard metrics. They live longer, they earn more, they marriages stay longer, they have less crime. Uh, they're healthier, Uh, just everything goes better (laughs) for religious people on average. So that's a real puzzle if you think they're just all making a big mistake. They're just, you know...
0: Except you have to add the piece that, given that virtually every society is filled with religious people, to be an outlier in that society as an atheist, you pay a social cost for not... I mean, you, you don't have the community. You, you don't have the tax breaks that get you big buildings. I mean, it's, it's, this data isn't yeah. mostly about
2: atheists. It's about variation among people who are more versus less religious. And the people right. who are more religious right. are healthier in all these ways, unless you know you don't have to be an right. avowed atheist to fit in this data. Right. But there, are additional
0: co- there additional social costs to, to to defecting for from defecting that. entirely. But, yeah. but most people, it's okay if
2: you are mildly religious but don't go to church very much. I mean, that doesn't get you in much trouble. Right. But still, those people are less healthy. But so. then,
0: what do you do with all the Western European data on just the, you have these secular societies that by every. Right. So at the better society the level, the correlation goes the other way. <laughs>
2: right. So societies with more religion uh, tend to be doing worse off in our world, but individuals with more religion tend to do better. So that's the data you have to puzzle over <laughs> to make sense of what's going on. Uh, so it, there may be net effects of religion that hurt societies overall, but right. apparently the individuals are benefiting, and you need to, you have to ask, why are the individuals benefiting? It seems benefiting.
0: like a free rider problem. You're a religious person in a society where you have all these secular people doing profitable work. And you get the best of both worlds. Religious people work too. so uh, Except for the ultra-orthodox in Israel. Yeah.
2: So, so they're, they're taking down the stats the other way. But overall, the correlation is that religious people do better. And so, uh, the, the explanation we describe in the book is a standard among social sciences, sociologists, religion, etc., which is just that they are able to bond to each other, and that, that's a function they perform. Uh, but it's not necessarily what's in their head. Uh, But that's just the simplest explanation, Uh, and and that creates this problem, of course, if we think that societies are better off without these beliefs, Mm -hmm. uh, and that often they go badly wrong. Uh, How do we uh, gain the advantages of these strong commitments without uh, the cost of these religions? Of course, people are often substituting modern religions. So, as you may have noticed, people are often treating politics much like a religion today. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe that means it's better, and maybe it's not, I'm not sure. I don't
0: know. Although that actually is most people's, or certainly many people's, conscious motive for valuing religion. A community is is way up there on the list of benefits you get from... Sure, absolutely. It's just not that... They just won't put it at the top. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, Sam, Robin, thank you both so much for doing this.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming.
4: Um, So you spoke about wandering a little bit, and I wonder, Sam, if you have tips or advice for people who plan on... Um, studying intensive meditation in Asia with various teachers. And Robin, if you have anything to say about kind of wandering generally, advice or something.
0: Uh, well, I certainly don't think you need to do it in Asia. I don't think there's anything magical about doing it there. In fact, if the goal is to sit or retreat, I don't think everyone should do that. But I mean, if you're the sort of person who wants to do that and should do that, I think... Doing it in the West or doing it in some place that's, that's not distracting, where you're not dealing with food that you may not like or maybe may making you sick or I mean, it's like it's like oh, this, you take out all the, the variables that are not necessary for the actual project of, of staying in silence and, and being able to practice with good instruction. So if, if you were just generically I would, I would recommend that people sit meditation retreats at either the Insight Meditation Society in Western Massachusetts or at Spirit Rock in Northern California. those are two very good centers that are just really well set up for silent retreat. Uh, I mean, there are other reasons to go to Asia and wander around. and I mean, that's also a great thing to do. But if it's just about retreat, I I wouldn't necessarily say go to Asia.
2: So everything depends on what you want out of life. And you don't really know that, unfortunately. And you need to try different things to see what you want out of life. But but, but from a distance, you can just tell some very basic things. Uh, If what you want is to have some amazing experiences, uh, then wandering in the space of experiences is one of the you know, ways you're going to find that. If you just stay in one place, you'll, you'll see the range of experiences there. And so I, I, I'm happy to grant that uh, you know, meditation and, and these sorts of routes will give you some experiences you might well not experience some other way. Uh, that's a different goal than, say, becoming very rich or very popular or, or famous uh, or, or just you know, having a spectacular music session. <laughs> You have to ask what you want. Now, from my point of view, my ideal is is to contribute to the accumulation of insight in the world. So I want to look at something and experience something and then have an insight into that that I can say in a way that will then pile on to the insight we will all have so that we can all... So this is the way I'm part of something larger than myself, this whole process of accumulating insight. And for me then, having these special experiences I can't explain to other people has much less value.
0: What, what makes you think you can't explain them?
2: Well, because otherwise I could just say, well, I don't need to experience just explain it to me, please. So, so that, you know, if you could just tell me the fact, the, the things you've learned about the world from your experience, then I don't need to experience, I can just hear it from you and then I can build on that. That's how I, you know, build on almost, I don't do much chemistry myself. I read right. about chemists and I believe what they say and I can build on chemistry, but with the, these experiences, apparently, there are many of these things, also even reading the classics, supposedly, where I can't just, hear the summary from you, read a textbooks, I need to go experience it myself, but if, I, if that's because I couldn't just believe what you told me and, and understand it, I have to experience it myself, but that means I won't ever be able to explain
0: that to somebody else either. Well, no, you would explain the recipe for having that experience. Right, but, I, but the insight from the experience
2: I couldn't transfer.
0: Well, in the usual case, no, but it's, it's, right. it's a little bit like asking, like, what is it like to have a good relationship you know, it's like you can't... Like, you, it's not just information. I can't say, okay, here's a thing I'm going to tell you that's going to make you have a good relationship. You first so, so there's more to life
2: than accumulating insights, you know? <laughs> have a friend, have relationships, enjoy food, great, but, you know, that's different than this thing I'm really attached to, which is being part of this process of accumulation of insight, and just having a great experience that you can't explain to somebody else doesn't do that for me. But, but, but there's more to life to, than insight, of course. Yes.
4: Okay, so I guess this question may be geared more towards Sam. Maybe you might be an expert on this. Um, so, Sam, I want you to reconcile something for me. Um, it's essentially the role of ambition and other forms of determination around free will. Hmm. I'm particularly interested in public policy and the role of government intervention. Uh, so as it relates to your illusionary nature of free will, what would you tell a child Was born to ill-educated parents in bleak poverty, about their role in society and about their prospects for success. And perhaps more importantly, what is the role of public policy and government intervention as it relates to social issues of mobility uh, in the face of your argument against who will?
0: Okay, good question. Well, I think to take the last part first, I think the and this is, all, this is something that we all have to decide, it just you know, what we want the role of government to be. But I, I think, at a minimum, the role is to cancel some measure of bad luck that no one is responsible for. Right? I mean, the, the people have good luck and people have bad luck. And it could be one of you or your closest friend or family member at any time who has bad luck. And so even for, for self-interested reasons alone, to say nothing of actual compassion for other people. We should all want a, a, a safety net or a system of, of influences that can cancel the most egregious disparities in luck. And so some of those disparities are of the sort you just mentioned. So the, being a child born to poor, uneducated parents, right? That's unlucky, certainly with, re, with the respect to, to the variables of, of wealth and all that education can get you as far as a head start in life and obviously it's a global problem too, but just to take the, the, the local case of our own nation, I think we should want to therefore give people as much access to opportunity as, as possible and as, as they can avail themselves of. Again, acknowledging the differences between people. I mean, not everyone can go to Harvard. Not everyone could make use of four years at Harvard. Some people you would just put into Harvard and they would, if Harvard would spit them out again because they don't have the tools to thrive there, and it wouldn't be good for them there. So uh, it's not to say that everyone should be thrown onto the same playing field necessarily, but everyone should be given as much opportunity to thrive and to make a positive contribution to society that that they can use. And when you have people who have all kinds of disadvantages, health and wealth and everything else, we should try to correct for that as, as much as we can. And we, by default, we'll wind up correcting for it in ineffective and more costly ways. Right. So if we decide we don't want to give universal health care because we're against that for some reason, everyone should just figure out how to get their own health care, well, we're still going to have a society where we have hospitals with ERs that anyone can walk into and rack up astronomical bills because they're in extremis, and they, have, they never had any health care until that moment, where they, you know, you know, a homeless person walks into an ER and gets treated, and it costs you and me you know, $15,000 or whatever. That's the that's situation we have now. So we, we should, again, if only for self-serving reasons, we should want a, a more efficient, more equitable situation than that. Uh, as far as free will, it's, just, it's, not, it's not an important variable when thinking about these sorts of issues. I mean, people are just open to a, a web of influences, you know, they, first of all, they, they, they didn't, no one made themselves, right? so no one is deeply responsible for who they are when they come into the world. They're not responsible for the world. They're not responsible for all the influences that, that sculpt who they are. You know, that's not a message that I think needs to be emphasized to four-year-olds, right? But it's something that we should understand about ourselves. We should understand that it's, it's like you know, Robin just said, well, there are situations where if you really want to change yourself, here's something you can do that will have a bigger effect on you than doing something else. You know, one thing might be publicizing your desire to change to everyone around so that then they begin to expect you to change, right? So that you have a reputational cost if you don't change. Well, that, this is not an example of free will. This is an example of what it's like to be someone who now everyone is looking at to, to see whether he's lost any weight or you know, quit smoking or whatever the, the change is. And so we can, we can game the influences on ourselves intelligently. And again, this doesn't demonstrate free will, this, this, this demonstrates the fact that we're kind of an open system in dialogue with, with the world and with other people at all times, and, and we should just make the most intelligent and compassionate use of, of those influences. I want to recommend
2: a book called The Great Leveler, uh, which is about the history of inequality. And the summary point is that inequality basically consistently, consistently always increases, except when big wars, famines, or civilization collapses. Uh, and, and hardly anything else matters for it. Uh, you know, it's one of those ropes that everybody's pulling on, so it's really hard to make much of a difference to. And given that history, you kind of should hope inequality increases. <laughs> as the alternative is worse.
0: It could it could also increase, but all but the the floor could keep rising yeah. as well. Yeah, works. absolutely.
2: Okay, one more
4: thing. Uh, I just want to say, if uh, you and Eric Weinstein ever decide to run, I want to offer my pro bono <laughs> work as campaign manager for president. So just want to get that off okay. Okay. Thank
5: you. Um. It's interesting that you mentioned the inequality because we're kind of hitting maybe that tipping point where we might start to have the fall apart and get the re-leveling. What I wanted to talk to you about was the incentives and the really interesting conversation you two started for us about how incentives influence our behavior and how our society currently has a lot of weird incentives set up that are not really helping us out, right? And I'm curious about one specific one uh, this idea of the profit motive, which is really the underlying organizing principle of our capitalist system right now. And how, that, how does this profit motive incentive corrupt our uh, behaviors, especially in relation to allocation of resources, Because at the end of the day, we're playing a big game right now where whoever makes the most profit is the most accomplished. And we look at them at the Forbes 50 or 500 or whatever, and we go, wow, you're so amazing. But it doesn't matter if you destroyed the environment or poisoned people to get there as long as you did it legally. And therefore, we have a lot of incentive towards nasty behavior. So I'm curious what you think of in regards to how profit motive as an incentive is influencing our
2: society. Back in the Middle Ages, in Europe, uh, they had rules against uh, interests, but they had Jews who could violate the rules. (laughs) And that was useful because they really wanted to violate the rules, but as good Christians, they couldn't. But they had these other people who would help them violate the rules. Corporations are part of that in our society. (laughs) That is, we give corporations the dirty work that we would rather morally not do. and then uh, we get the benefits of them being done without our taking the blame. So if, if we were deciding whether somebody should get fired, we personally will almost never fire anybody because it's just really hard to fire somebody. It's very post- emotionally painful. It just feels like a really bad person to fire somebody. But if you set up a corporation uh, and a profit motive, and, and the, the, they will fire somebody if they're not doing a job, and you enjoy the benefits then of a world where people who aren't doing their job well get fired, and stuff actually works. So uh, this is you know, a case of conflicts of motives. You would like to pretend that we should all follow these good rules, like you know, never firing people unless it's really extreme or something. But then uh, you enjoy the world <laughs> where these rules are violated because we've set up these corporations as the ones who do the evil that the rest of us won't do. <laughs> they will just follow the profit motives. They will fire people. They will you know, change things. Uh, they will disrupt things uh, in ways that we personally would find uncomfortable but uh, we get a world where things work better and better because they're doing that. So uh, there, there's a conflict there. Uh, I'm not sure you well, actually want a world where they aren't doing all these things.
5: Isn't it possible to set up an incentive structure that has us hold people accountable rather than the profit motive way of doing it? Well, because like in a family without a profit motive, you might still hold someone accountable in a friendship you would hold them accountable and say, you're not doing your job, you need to raise it up. Like, aren't there other incentive structures that we can use to get the same result?
2: It's really hard to create systems of account that can stress, stretch across large social distances that don't look a lot like money. Uh, it's just really hard to come up with that. I mean, I'm an economist, we've, we've thought about a lot of things. It, it, it just works a lot better than the alternative so far. Uh, but the space of institutions is really large. I mean, I encourage everybody to realize we have only begun to search in the space of possible institutions and arrangements, and we should be doing a lot more searching than we are. But then we shouldn't let go of what, the things that work so far before we jump to another thing, right? We should explore other ideas, do small-scale trials, larger-scale trials, then see what works, and then switch. And so far, the other small-scale trials we've, we've done on these other ideas just haven't worked very well. But we should keep searching. Uh, I have a quick question about
4: conspiracy so I'm a uh, student of evolutionary psychology, and I've been really interested in just theories, care since I discovered my cousin, and he started this one. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm really curious, because I took some philosophy courses, and I think that really helped me in my critical thinking, and so I predict now the study that I write about that yeah. taking philosophy courses would uh, protect you from creating any conspiracy theories. Um, can you think of any of the variables that you think
0: could protect people from um, from for conspiracy theories? Actually, well, I think Robin's idea of betting on things is, can be useful here. Because if, if people had to wager money on... I, I, it, the problem is you, what adjudicates how the bet turns out. It would be like, what, what evidence would they take? If they're not accepting the evidence now that George Bush didn't rig the Twin Towers to explode or that the, the moon landing wasn't faked what would get them to acknowledge that a, a bet could be you know, falsified or not. But when I've posed this to people who claim to hold some cherished conspiratorial notion, when I ask them how much money they would wager on it being true, it, it, it sharpens up the conversation. And <laughs> you see them begin to hedge. I mean, these are people who have massive sunk cost in in one of these, they've just gone down the rabbit hole and stayed there for years online. But when you say, well, you know, let's just say we have, we could get the answer. How much would you bet that, it, that it's the way you think it is? You do see them reevaluate it. It's like another module comes online. And if we could, if we could actually find a casino that would adjudicate these things, uh, I think you would see some far more conservative betting than, than people are, are alleging. And then you'd see people just blow their whole you know, life savings on the craziest thing in the world. Uh, I'm sure those people exist too. I, I have yet to actually admit to myself that the flat earth thing is real and that, that people really believe this. So if you have a cousin, that's, that's one data point that uh, I'll take on board, but it's, it's amazing to me. That... So remember the, the point that people want to pretend to be
2: concerned about world events, but they're really concerned about the world around them. And the world around them has a lot of conspiracies. The real world around you actually has a lot of conspiracies. People are cheating their business partners, they're cheating on their marriage, they're selling people crap that doesn't work. The world around you is full of conspiracies, and you kind of know that. And, and believing and talking about conspiracies about the larger world is kind of this indirect signal to the people around you: "I'm watching, I'm watching out, don't, I'm not going to be fooled." And that's actually much more socially functional. Uh, yes, they can go too far, they can go crazy, especially if they make these big bets, but. Uh, when they just mildly believe in conspiracy theories. They're sending the message to people around you, I'm not gullible, I'm watching out, I'm not, I'm not just going to believe everything you tell me. You know, you better be careful. And that's functional.
0: There is a, a symptomology. The, the, the people who believe one conspiracy theory tend to believe many of them. So it's yes. the JFK thing, it's the, right. it's the moon landing thing. It's, they check many boxes, not just one. and that's. That right. should tell them something. So that's the message you should get yeah. clear.
2: Yeah. I'm watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
6: It also tends to distrust the governments. Yes.
0: There's an underlying distrust of power, and there's. A, I mean, the, the, the thing that should really be fishy about conspiracy thinking is that, on, the, on one level, it, it, it's incredibly cynical. It's attributing the worst motives to everyone in power all the time. But it's also attributing competence that we know doesn't exist. And that competence is married to completely bizarre outcomes. So, for instance, like so, the, to take the 9/11 truth. Uh, sorry for anyone who's a truther here. I'm about to say something you hate, but to the 9/11 truth thing is it, this perfect conspiracy. I mean, the, the uncountable number of moving parts. Thousands of, of psychopaths had to conspire to to kill 3,000 people in downtown Manhattan. Uh, for no good reason, to, you know, to make it look like the Saudis did it, but somehow to motivate a war in Iraq. You know, make sense of that. But they did all of this co- only to culminate with, and, and, and you know, George Bush is complicit here, but only to unveil this thing just when he's sitting down to read My Pet Goat with a, with a group of <laughs> kindergartners, and he can't figure out that he shouldn't finish the reading, right? I mean. It's, it's just this, these are not competent people who are, who are conspiring perfectly to, to bring down the world. Anyway, don't get me started on 9-11 Truth. <laughs> uh, yes, thank you, uh,
4: Sam and Robin. This has been an insightful evening. Uh, I had a question sort of in Robin's area of expertise about future economics with AI and uh, robots replacing humans. and. You know, as the decades go by, a higher and higher percentage of people will find themselves looking for work. And as the century goes by, you'd expect a very high percentage of people to not really be employable without some augmentation of some type. And people have talked about basic income solutions or uh, earned income tax credits. I'm sort of wondering what you think are the economic paths towards continued human happiness in this environment?
2: (laughs) Eventually the robots will take all the jobs, (laughs) not soon. (laughs) That is, I don't actually think much is changing lately. We've had automation replacing uh, work for several centuries now. Uh, The rate of job displacement and task displacement is relatively steady. That will continue for a while, but eventually there will come a time where the jobs get displaced. That might happen suddenly, or it might happen more gradually, but we're not really at the point we're even seeing that. We're not actually really seeing much of an effect on automation on employment now, and probably won't for another few decades, but eventually we will. Uh, the right time to buy insurance, a uh, flood insurance, is before it starts raining. <laughs> it's not raining robots now, but maybe this is a good time to think about setting up some insurance arrangements for when it does, as long as everybody, everybody's talking about it. Uh, but the most effective insurance would be targeted specifically to the risk. Uh, so Robot taking over the world insurance would basically be you know, a contract that pays off when the robots take all the jobs, but not under any other circumstances. And then it would be pretty cheap because it's not going to happen soon. It needs to be global insurance. There's a danger if you buy local insurance that the, the robot economy may be concentrated in just a few places in the earth. And if your insurance base is local, you may not be basing much. So universal basic insurance has two issues with respect to being a solution here, one is they usually talk about it having a local base. That is, we're going to have a local tax and produce local UBI, but that doesn't solve the problem if it's globally very concentrated. And the other issue is it's not very well targeted to the problem. You're just generally redistributing in all cases, no matter what, as opposed to focusing on the particular risk there. So. Uh, you know, it might be a political compromise that in order to get this insurance, you have to give other people some other benefits. You often have to make compromises by, like that. But if your goal is specifically to deal with this one risk, then the ideal thing is to design insurance specifically to deal with that risk, and then it could be pretty cheap, actually.
0: Does anyone have the time? I'm sorry, but there was, there was no clock up here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, yes, we're okay. 1023, okay. I'm sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to bring it down to just two more questions, so over here. Can
4: yeah. yeah, yeah. um, In this session, I'd like to talk a little bit about free will, determinism. You talk a lot about free will, determinism, but you rarely talk about the benefits of believing that you're determined.
0: Yeah, yeah, or not believing in free will, yeah. Yeah,
4: or not believing yeah. in free will, right. Um, so, like one of benefit the, that you mentioned is that uh, you can forgive yourself for errors. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like another benefit might be uh, that you can realize something's too difficult for you to do now, but if you take on some habit, maybe in a year you would do it, or you know something along those lines. I like yeah.
0: That. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you you know my answer here. It really forgiveness is a massive one. It's a, it's it is a huge enabler of, of your capacity to forgive, and you, you, might, you might not see the possibility of forgiveness in certain circumstances where if you just put this lens over it, you really can't find a reason why you wouldn't forgive on some level. Let me just take the, the prototypically evil person, right? The, an evil person is on some level unlucky to be who he is. So when you, when you fall victim of some human evil, the, the most, it's the most natural thing in the world to find it unforgivable and to just meet it with your own hatred and to want to annihilate this person. And, I, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a pacifist. There are definitely circumstances where you, you need to use violence to keep yourself safe or other people safe, and that's the right thing to do and the compassionate thing to do. And so it, this doesn't imply pacifism. But when you just look at evil people doing bad things, on some level, they are malfunctioning robots. I mean, they have brains that, that we don't completely understand that are the, the actual locus of these evil impulses. At a certain point, at you know, some limit case where we have a completed neuroscience and we actually understand human evil at the level of neurophysiology, well, then human evil will look like a neurological problem, right? And it may, it may admit of a cure, right? There may be a pill for evil, you know, or, or just something we put in the in the milk supply that just cancels human evil and then and then then the the punchline would finally land where you'd recognize everyone in human history up until that moment who had been evil was just unlucky they were on some level a victim of biology right Uh, or and biology and all the other influences that led to them having the brains they had so obviously that's setting the bar too high for most of us most of the time. If your you know, child gets killed by a sadistic maniac, I'm not saying read my book on free will and you'll forgive that sadistic maniac, but if you actually take the time to think about any of these situations dispassionately, you know, when you're not, it's not necessarily happening to you, you will see that luck counts for a lot and free will can't be found. And that allows for a kind of forgiveness which is, I think, truly valuable. And it allows for an unplugging from the drama of, like, when someone's treating you badly, now again, we're not in the realm of evil, but just, you know, we're on Twitter, right? You know, when I see, you know, Glenn Greenwald or Reza Aslan slime me on Twitter, and I have a reaction, if I remember to think what I actually think about how people behave and why they behave the way they do, it does cancel uh, an emotional reaction in me that is predicated on not understanding what, in fact, I understand. And then re-understanding it cancels that reaction for me.
4: Also, one of the benefits is an alternative to Christianity, forgiveness Yeah, yeah. Christian and religion
0: it does, and yeah, and, and, and cancelling shame. I mean, shame does serve a psychological function. I mean, you wouldn't want to be a primate without a capacity for shame. That doesn't work well. I mean, we call those people psychopaths. But the question is, like, how, like, how much shame is it pragmatic and useful to feel in your life? And I think if, you, if, if shame is an issue for you, realizing that you didn't make yourself uh, and that you're not deeply responsible on some level for who you were yesterday, and all you can do is go forward into the mystery of who you may yet become, and you can't see the limits to who you may yet become. I mean, you really don't know how much you can change in the future. That frees you from continually punishing yourself for who you were yesterday.
2: There's a related issue with respect to social mobility, which is kind of paradoxical. If you think about a medieval society where you're stuck in your position and you have to do what your parents do, uh, there's a sense in which, you know, you don't have the hope and and the flexibility. On the other hand, you don't have to blame yourself for failure nearly as much. (laughs) In our society, because we have more mobility, we now have more potential to feel bad and blame ourselves when we don't realize the possible rise in mobility and we have a fall. Uh, You know, that's a trade-off in you know, not having much free will, in essence, versus having more freedom and feeling
0: better about it. Thank you. Thank you. This will have to be the last one. No pressure. (laughs)
3: Uh, I hate to expand a little bit on the gentleman in front of me, but uh, I'm a consultant specializing in automation software, so I feel pretty uh, close to contributing to robots ruling the world. I was wondering, so you mentioned kind of insurance and stuff like that, but I'm curious for both of you, what do you, where do you see our society and our culture going in the next 10 years and then following the next 50 years as more and more jobs are replaced by software and automation and stuff like that? Uh, Also touching on AI, which I know is something that not many people have asked you yet. kind of wondering where the world's gonna go as we progress down that track. And also for you, Robin, uh, if you could, I'm curious what your thoughts are on cryptocurrency, blockchain technologies, decentralized, stuff like that as an economist. Um, Kind of a a sidebar, if you will, for you.
0: Briefly, it's something that I I worry about. I worry that, that, uh, to to cite the book that you just cited, The Great Leveler, that book begins with a, I I actually just started reading it, so that's why I can talk about the beginning and not the rest of it. (laughs) it begins with this factoid which I, I think has since changed that the 62 richest people and in 2015, the 62 richest people on earth owned more than the, the bottom three and a half billion people on earth. And now that I think, I think that's down to the, the, the eight richest people on earth and it's something like the, the richest 20 people in, in the U.S. own more than the bottom half of the U.S. I, so I, I worry about inequality and I think, I think technology only amplifies that trend. But clearly there's this massive opportunity too. If we, if we got our, our, our head straight around the ethics and the politics and the economics, and we realized that we needed to share the wealth. I mean, if you, if, if you imagine AI working out and we actually build more and more powerful machines that cancel the need for, for human drudgery and even begin to cancel the need for certain kinds of intellectual work because they just do that work better than we can, and we are the beneficiaries of all this, these engines of wealth creation, well then, if we can figure out some mechanism by which to spread the wealth around or to set the safety net at a higher and higher level so that people have a claim on their, on their own existence that doesn't require them to do profitable work anymore. I mean, like if We're talking about the possibility of canceling the need for work so then what, what, what does human life become? What games do we play? How do you solve you, that? When you don't actually need, you need to tell a better story about what human life is for. And you need to begin to value people based on a, a, another metric. It can't be that you have figured out how to do something that I want to pay you for right, anymore when there really is very little work for humans to do. It's kind of a dogma of economics that there will always be work for humans to do. It's not. It's not. I mean, I, I certainly have met those economists. I mean, you're, you don't happen to be one, but but you can meet economists who will say, no, this is. They, they draw an analogy from agriculture. It used to be that we had 80 percent of us working on, on farms, and now it's two percent of us, and the and the other the the 78 percent are now doing other more interesting, you know, less less dangerous work, perhaps, and they just imagine that trend continuing indefinitely. And I, I don't I don't actually see that. I think we, we will need a society where we become increasingly creative and just have types of fun that don't have to make economic sense and and pursue our intellectual interests in ways that don't make economic sense because the machines are making all the economic sense. That's what's to be hoped for.
2: I mean, I already said that I don't think it's happening soon, but we might as well think about preparing ahead of time. I want to make two main points. One is that we have seen people through history who have been rich enough not to have to work. That's happened a lot. So it isn't a mystery what those people do. <laughs> we, we have plenty of historical data to guess that people will not, you know, they won't commit suicide and throw themselves off cliffs or something. You know, They will go on with their lives because uh, we've seen that sort of thing. So they will find different meanings in their lives. And as we all know, people find a wide range of meanings in their lives. And it's hard to predict which people will find which meanings, but they will go on just doing what people have already done. That seems just obvious, uh, as long as they have sufficient resources to support it. So you know, there's the issue whether humans who are no longer productive can maintain their role as a rich capitalist in the face of potential revolution or wars that might disrupt them out of their role, and that's the issue related to the issue of AI control, whether humans could maintain that role. Uh, that They're at risk somewhat for that. Uh, but there's also the issue of whether descendants of humans can stay in the role of working. Uh, if you think about your ancestors from a few thousand years ago, imagine they were subsistence farmers and you told them, uh, The future is going to be industrialists. In the future, those industrialists will have all the jobs. They'll be living in cities, and they'll be living in apartments and driving cars. And people like you and your children who are subsistence farmers, you will be on the margin of society. You won't have much influence. You you won't matter very much anymore. They could think, "Boohoo! people like me are going to lose out, and those others will win. Or you could think, well, then I want my children, grandchildren, at some point to go to the city and learn to become industrialists. They aren't intrinsically... Uh, farmers, they, they could switch and try to adapt to this new world. Yes, they will change in many ways, but I might still embrace what they might become. So uh, in our future, humans could uh, become different. So that's my book, The Age of M, is about what happens when we have descendants who are brain emulations who are robots, but who psychologically feel very much like humans. And I think they actually have a long potential future as workers, as productive elements of society. It is obvious they get beat out by other kinds of software. Uh, they become different, and we biological humans. If if you don't, you know, become them, we might be on the margins, like subsistence farmers are today. We still have subsistence farmers out there. We still have foragers out there. They just aren't at the center of society. And they aren't running things, and they are vulnerable to what happens here. If we have a world war and there's foragers out in a jungle, and the war goes through the jungle, well, they can suffer. And similarly, if we are on the margins of a the society, and we are at risk to whatever happens in the middle, because you know, we're we're not really the center of activity. But I think. Uh, humans, who stay on, humans who stay on the margins and who maintain some property rights can live a comfortable life being rich. I don't think it's a problem to find meaning. People have always find meaning. And there's a prospect for humans having descendants becoming part of the center of that new world, but changing in many ways to do that. That's a short summary of a longer talk.
0: Well, <laughs> when people start offering products where your brain can be comprehensively scanned and a clone of you can be made to do more profitable work than you can, then you'll know we're close to this. This moment. Well, listen, thank you all for coming out. It's really an honor to be able to come here and have a conversation with someone like Robin in front of people like you. So thank you, Robin. Well right. Thank you so much. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.